0: Did you catch the Lockheed thing in Maverick?
1: The skunk on the tail of the plane.
0: Oh, yeah. On the uh, Mach 10 Dark Star aircraft. Mach 10 (laughs) Dark Star. Oh, God. All right,
2: let's do it. All right, let's do this. Welcome to Season 12, Episode 5 of
0: Acquired, the podcast about great technology companies and the stories and playbooks behind them. I'm Ben Gilbert.
1: I'm David Rosenthal.
0: And we are your hosts. Today's episode is on a critical piece of American infrastructure, Lockheed Martin. They are the nation's largest defense contractor. They're actually the federal government's largest contractor, period. The American taxpayers pay Lockheed Martin around $50 billion a year. And just to state this early and clearly, Lockheed Martin makes, among other things, killing machines. The company is, of course, critical to defending the American way of life, and most of these things they make, fortunately, are used as deterrents to keep peace, but we should not mince words. They make weapons synonymous with phrases like overwhelming force and air superiority. You may feel, and probably should feel, conflicted as you learn about this company, There are really no easy answers to the question, is what they make right or good? And that's why we entrust the decision to use their products to the office of the President of the United States. But this company's history is absolutely fascinating. There's stories of hardcore engineering, daring innovators, and it's frankly just inspiring.
1: Yeah, going back and learning all this and soaking in the history of the times when Lockheed was really forged gave me at least a whole new perspective on this killing machines and deterrence question that we will talk about. So listen as you go through. It might give you a new perspective, too. So also, speaking of, to tell the full story of Lockheed and Lockheed Martin and all the predecessor companies that came before it, because I think it's like 17, 20, 25 companies all merged together at this point, would probably require a full season of Acquired, so we're not going to do that. (laughs) Instead, we're going to focus on two interwoven stories from Lockheed not Martin but Lockheed's golden eras and the first of those stories is the famous skunk works the second one I'm not going to say what it is so we don't spoil it just yet but as a teaser it's unbelievable and is directly tied in to the birth of Silicon Valley so if you're in the tech world and you think Lockheed Martin and defense and fighter planes doesn't apply to me think again because pretty much everything you do came out of this So I can't wait to tell it.
0: Ooh, quite the teaser, David. Well, listeners, this episode was selected by Acquired LPs, and it legitimately changed the topic that we were going to cover on this episode since an overwhelming number of you wanted Lockheed Martin instead of the episode we were thinking. So if you want to help pick an episode for next season, you can become an Acquired Limited partner, come closer to the show in other ways, including a private Zoom call with us every month or two for all the LPs. You can join anytime at acquirefm slash LP. If you want more from David and I, you should check out our interview show, ACQ2, available publicly in any podcast player. Our last episode was on the topic of how generative AI can be valuable specifically to B2B SaaS companies, and probably more importantly, where it cannot. We interviewed Emergence partner Jake Saper, friend of the show, after he did a whole bunch of research on the topic for where they're placing their bets at Emergence. And listeners, you can just search ACQ2 anywhere podcasts are found.
1: We've got some awesome interviews coming up, too. ACQ2 is on fire. If you're not subscribed, make sure you go click over and do that.
0: Yep. Join the Slack, acquired.fm slash Slack. We'll be discussing this episode there afterwards. And without further ado, David, take us in. And listeners, as always, this show is not investment advice. David and I may have investments in the companies we discuss. And this show is for informational and entertainment purposes only.
1: So for many of you listening... One thing you may not know that I didn't really know till we started the research is that the company that eventually became Lockheed Martin today was two companies. It was Lockheed and Martin Marietta, and there was a huge merger in 1995. Lockheed was actually the second Lockheed company, or really maybe the third. As was Martin. As was Martin, that's right. The first Lockheed company was founded in 1912 by one Alan... Lockheed, But if you were to look at the spelling of his name, it would look like Loghead.
0: L-O-U-G-H-E-A-D. Yes,
1: but it was pronounced Lockheed because it is Scottish like Lock, like Loch Ness, Lockheed, not Loghead. He eventually changed his name to Lockheed and the name of the second company to Lockheed to avoid
0: mispronunciations. Which is great. He didn't just rename Lockheed the company. He's like, yeah, I'm actually going to change my own name spelling to match it.
1: Yes. So great. So... He started the first company with his brother, Malcolm, and they were more or less contemporaries of the Wright brothers. So think way, way back, early aviation history. It was based in San Francisco, of all places, Hmm. and it was mostly kind of a tourist attraction. They had one plane, the Model G, and they flew tourists around over the bay and evangelized this new flying technology. It had a bunch of ups and downs. They eventually moved to Santa Barbara. Malcolm leaves the company and goes to Detroit to seek his fortune in the automobile industry where he invented the modern hydraulic brake system for automobiles. So every time you press the brake in your cars, you're using Malcolm Lockheed's technology. No way. Yeah, super cool. They also end up hiring into this first Lockheed company, one John Northrop.
0: That name might
1: ring some bells to help them design their future airplanes. John would go on to be a co-founder with Alan of the second Lockheed Company, then leave to strike out on his own where he founded the Avion Corporation. That gets acquired by Douglas and becomes a big part of Douglas. Douglas, of course, is now part of Boeing. (laughs) And then after that, John, as you might imagine, founded, you guessed it, Northrop, which is now Northrop Grumman. So this one dude was responsible for founding or playing a major role in three of the remaining five... Defense prime contractors today.
0: It's so crazy. The sentence, John Northrop, co-founder of the Lockheed Company, who later founded a company that sold to McDonald Douglas of Boeing McDonnell Douglas is like a blah.
1: Right. <laughs> who then later founded Northrop of Northrop Grumman. <laughs> Nuts. But anyway, the first Lockheed company goes under. They start the second one a few years later. They have some success with the Vega airplane. People might be familiar with that. It becomes a favorite of Amelia Earhart and Wiley Post, famous
0: early aviators. And this was one of the first airplanes that didn't have support posts. It was just that sort of single wing, not the double stacked wings that you see in the early aircrafts, but like a really stable winged aircraft that just has one plane jutting out from the cockpit on the fuselage.
1: Yeah, they were doing great stuff pushing aviation engineering forward. It becomes successful this second lockheed company they end up selling it to a consortium of detroit Automoguls, maybe through the relationships from malcolm or something that have formed the quote unquote detroit aircraft corporation or the dac this is including charles kettering the founder of delco and head of research at gm as part of this
0: you may know memorial sloan kettering
1: exactly same dude so the idea was they were going to build the general motors of the air There was just one problem with that is that aviation did not become a consumer industry like the automobile industry (laughs) alan lockheed departs at this point in time and is kind of tangentially involved but this company that to this day bears his name after this point in time he doesn't really have a lot of impact on now shortly after this maybe harebrained gm of the air idea comes together and lockheed gets sold to the detroit aircraft corporation The stock market crash of 1929 and the Great Depression happens and DAC predictably goes bankrupt. They sell off the Lockheed division, which is actually still fairly profitable, out of bankruptcy to an entrepreneurial young businessman named Robert Gross. And this is really the founding of the modern Lockheed.
0: And the craziest thing, this price that he bought it for, $40,000, was so low that Alan Lockheed actually considered... Bidding to buy his company back when they had it on the auction block. And his considered bid was $50,000, but he thought that is so low that it might be insulting. There's no way they'd ever sell it. So he didn't actually bid. And the winning bid was $10,000 less.
1: So amazing. When everything you know of Lockheed today and everything you probably don't know that we're going to tell you on this episode, this company got bought out of bankruptcy for $40,000. It's crazy. So under Robert Gross and his brother Cortland, who gets involved, they really are the ones who turned Lockheed into the great company it became. So before World War II, during the 30s, Lockheed builds the famous Electra airplane, which is absolutely iconic. This is the plane that Amelia Earhart disappears in. Perhaps even more timelessly, this is the plane At the very, very famous scene at the end of the movie, Casablanca, when Rick puts Ilsa Uh, on the plane with Victor to escape the Nazis and says, here's looking at you, kid. That plane is an Electra. I believe an Electra Jr.
0: And listeners, you know this plane. It's one of those romantic early aircrafts that were always sort of perched up at an angle where if you saw it standing still on a runway, it looked like it could just take off at any moment from this very majestic angle that it was perched up at.
1: Oh, absolutely beautiful, as are so many of these planes that we're going to talk about. This, though, the Electra and Casablanca, brings us to the first core part of our story, which is World War II, which transforms everything. And a man named Clarence Kelly Johnson, who started the famous Lockheed Skunk Works division.
0: And this is great because... Before I started the research, I was loosely aware that Lockheed had the first Skunk Works. Now it's become almost like Kleenex when someone says Skunk Works, oh, we're going to start a little Skunk Works division. And like, it was not a thing until Kelly Johnson started the Skunk Works.
1: So there's a wonderful book. There are a bunch of wonderful books around Lockheed, but a book titled Skunk Works that was written by Ben Rich, who was Kelly's second in command for a long time at Skunk Works and then took it over when Kelly retired. And- This book is like the Top Gun of historical (laughs) autobiographies. You read it and you are just fired up. It is amazing what these people did. It's Top Gun for engineers. Yes, it's so great. I also highly recommend a book called Beyond the Horizons, which is hard to find and most people don't know about by Walter Boyne. And that is an amazing history of Lockheed during all these eras that we're going to talk about.
0: David, that's so mean. You're recommending an out-of-print book to people. (laughs) We keep doing this. (laughs) Uh, This one, I think I only paid like 40 bucks
1: for on Amazon. So it's not quite like Taste of Luxury and LVMH, which I think that's now like three, four or $5,000.
0: Oh, yeah. No, we definitely spiked the price.
1: We did. All right. So who is this Kelly Johnson? He's basically the Shigeru Miyamoto of airplane design. (laughs) His nickname is Kelly. Because when he was in grade school growing up in Michigan, you know his real name was Clarence. An older boy called him Clara on the schoolyard. And Johnson attacked him so viciously that he broke this kid's leg. And so after that, all of his schoolmates never called him Clarence or Clara again, and they nicknamed him Kelly. Okay, so not Clara, but why Kelly? There was some character of Kelly, kind of an Irish tough guy that they named him after, uh, that really was his personality. So after every Skunk Works test flight for the rest of his tenure running Skunkworks, they'd throw a big party, and Kelly would challenge anyone, all comers, to an arm wrestling match. And even <laughs> when he was like 60 years old, he was still beating people.
0: You should Google a picture of this dude. He is just a 1930s man's man at his finest.
1: Dude who is both incredibly brilliant and maybe the best airplane designer ever to live, that is
0: Kelly Johnson. Right. When you hear the stories about him, he could intuit the answer to difficult math problems in his head. And not just math problems, but like physics problems and applying Bernoulli's principle in his head and come up with an answer that was 5% off from the actual answer. And someone else would go spend hours and hours and hours with pencil and paper and slide roll to come to basically the same number.
1: The quote from his first boss, Lockheed's chief engineer at the time, Kelly would become the chief engineer. But his boss at the time, Hall Hibbard, would say, that guy can see the air. (laughs) (laughs) So Kelly ends up winning the Collier Trophy twice, one of only two people to do so in history. The Collier Trophy is the equivalent of like the Oscar for best picture. It's the best airplane design of the year. He wins it twice. He ends up being bestowed the Presidential Medal of Freedom by Lyndon Johnson later in his career. He is a true American hero. So he ends up joining Lockheed right out of the University of Michigan Engineering School. I'm sorry, University of Michigan, you know, Ohio State, sorry, Ben, in 1933 at 23 years old. And Kelly is really one of the, if not the principal engineer that designs and builds the Electra. So he becomes the star of Lockheed's then only six-person aviation design and engineering department. There were six people that were making these things crazy and he does basically everything himself engineering designing testing even flight testing there's this amazing quote in Skunkworks. this is ben rich talking kelly once said that unless he had the hell scared out of him at least once a year in a cockpit he wouldn't have the proper perspective to design airplanes <laughs> so great okay so the start of world war ii rolls around and the first thing that kelly and lockheed do is they adapt the Electra, into a bombing vehicle called the Hudson. And even before the U.S. enters the war, the British Royal Air Force ends up buying about 3,000 of these Hudsons from Lockheed.
0: Yeah, this is a thing that was eye-opening to me doing the research. Lockheed's big customer in World War II before the U.S. enters was Britain's Royal Air Force. They were a way bigger customer than the U.S. was for many, many years.
1: So then once the U.S enters the war and as they're gearing up to enter the war, Kelly designs the amazing P-38 Lightning Fighter, which was the U.S.'s elite, fastest, most maneuverable aircraft during World War II. They made over 10,000 of them during the war, and all of the top aces in the U.S. Army Air Corps flew them. It was the plane that shot down the transport that was carrying Japanese Admiral Yamamoto, the guy who had kind of masterminded and
0: overseen the Pearl Harbor attack. This is a legendary airplane. You basically have a crossbar with the cockpit in it and then two pistons going backwards, each of which have a prop in front of them and then sort of a twin tail.
1: Yeah, another just beautiful airplane.
0: Yep. Side note, I will say last week, partly in preparation for recording this, but partly because it's something that I've always wanted to do, I went to Pearl Harbor and there is truly nothing like... Being there and experiencing that. Growing up in America, we basically haven't had attacks on our soil. It's 9-11 and Pearl Harbor, period. So it's a very unusual thing to see in your own country an attack and the remnants of an attack. And being over the sunken USS Arizona from the Japanese bombing, it's uh, harrowing and heavy. But I think that that's an experience I'd recommend to anyone.
1: Totally agree. It's an amazing place. Okay. So... That was kind of Lockheed and Kelly during the war. Fast forward now to kind of the waning days of World War II, end of 1944 into 1945. It's pretty clear that America and the Allies are going to win the war at this point in time. But it's also becoming evident that there are two big problems that are emerging. One very immediate and one sort of longer term. The immediate problem is that in the skies over Europe, in the air theater of the European front, a new technology is appearing on the German side. Jet-powered fighter planes have begun to pop up. And we're not a uh, military history podcast, save this for Hardcore History and Dan Carlin, but my understanding of this is that the German jet fighters... Entered the war too late to make a difference. But if they had entered service earlier, it would have been a big problem. Huh. I didn't know that. Yeah. So the US and the Allies, you know, jet technology existed, but it was very much in the experimental phase. And they're like, oh crap, like our adversary has this applied. They're flying planes with this. We need to step up our game and get a jet fleet in service for us ASAP.
0: And for anyone who's not an AV geek out there or an aviation geek, It's worth knowing going from a prop airplane to a jet airplane is not just incremental. It's an entirely different technology. You may have heard the phrase if you've looked into this before, suck, squeeze, bang, blow. It is a completely transformative process of how the engine uses the air in order to create thrust that is much more sophisticated than just a propeller. My understanding is
1: the engines that airplanes were flying before then, even the P-38, as sophisticated as it was, were basically automobile internal combustion engines.
0: Totally. And in fact, when I was at Pearl Harbor and I was at the Aviation Museum and you see a lot of the airplanes that they have on display there, they literally look like that. Like you can see the internal combustion engine exposed sitting right behind the prop. So we're observing overseas, our enemy has a completely new technology that we have not tamed and mastered yet. We're at a disadvantage.
1: We got to hop to it. So that's one problem. And we're going to focus on that first. The other problem to put a pin in for later. And we start to get worried that our ally, the Russians and the Soviets, uh, our relationship with them might not be quite what we think it is. Uh, And uh, we might have to address that in the coming decades. So keep that in the back of your mind as we go along here. But let's start with the jet problem. So the German plane that had started appearing in the skies over Europe was the... Messerschmitt Me 262, nicknamed the Swallow, and it was the world's first operational jet-powered aircraft. It flew close to 550 miles an hour, which is over 100 miles an hour faster than any Allied plane, including the Lightning P-38. So the U.S. government turns to, of course, the very best person for the job to start the U.S. jet fighter program, Kelly Johnson and Lockheed. And they tell him, go make us a jet fighter, as soon as possible and by any means necessary. And when we say as soon as possible, we want a prototype in 180 days with the spec that it must go faster than the German Swallow, so at least 600 miles an hour. You need to pull out all the stops, bypass any red tape, do absolutely anything necessary to make this happen.
0: And for those tracking along at home, I'm gonna interject this every once in a while, 600 miles per hour, not quite the speed of sound, not quite Mach 1, but approaching that something like 80 ish percent to Mach.
1: Yep. So Johnson handpicks 23 of Lockheed's very best engineers and designers and about 30 of the best shop people, the people that actually build the airplanes and get this. He rents. A literal circus tent to house them <laughs> in the parking lot next to a plastics factory that is nearby to Lockheed's headquarters in Burbank, California. And it is because of this that the name Skunkworks is born because of the outdoor nature in the tent and the smell coming from this plastics factory. At the time, there was a very popular comic strip called Little Abner, and a character in this comic strip had a uh, outdoor moonshine still making bootlegged Prohibition-era alcohol, and this still in the comic strip was called The Skunk Works. I think it was called The Skunk Works. That's right, The Skunk Works with yeah. an O, and eventually the publisher of Little Abner sues Lockheed <laughs> over <laughs> using Skunk Works, so they change it to Skunkworks. Works. And so in this circus tent in a parking lot... Kelly and this super elite team from Lockheed build the first prototype U.S. fighter jet named the Lulu Bell in 143 days, start to finish. This is just wild. For years, the U.S. had been working on this technology and they hadn't gotten it operationalized. The Germans beat them to it. And then in 143 days, Kelly and Lockheed go from zero to flying prototype. Wow. Crazy. What a testament to him and to this
0: organization in the circus tent that he has built, the Skunk Works. Seriously. So this 180 day thing is a very interesting constraint placed on them. And it means that they immediately need to go to the an acquired axiom that we've talked about forever, don't do something that's not your core competency.
1: AKA doesn't make the beer taste better or make the plane fly faster.
0: Exactly, and outsource everything else. And if you only have 180 days to do it, you are not going to become an engine manufacturing company. You are going to look around and say, okay, which of my allies has the capability to just give me an engine. So they find this British company, Halford, and they take the Halford H-1B Goblin engine, and that is what they put in this prototype.
1: Yes, this prototype, the Lulu Bell, would go on to become the P-80 shooting star. Lockheed would ultimately make about 2,000 of them. And while they weren't really used in World War II because the war ended, they would be used in Korea, and it would be the first jet fighter plane in the US military. You raise a really important point, though, that we didn't cover earlier about Lockheed and Skunk Works. They are not engine manufacturers. I don't know if they make engines today. I suspect still probably not. They subcontract them out. But all of the engines that were going into the planes before, during, since, they're getting from other companies.
0: And that is true across the aerospace industry. That's interesting that the value chain evolved this way, where basically no aircraft manufacturers to this day make their own engines. In commercial, you've got Rolls-Royce, GE, but every single one of these Lockheed planes, the engines are made by someone else.
1: Yeah, very different from how the automobile industry evolved, where, like, obviously Ford and GM and whatnot, they're making their own engines. Yep. So this amazing feat, building what becomes the P-80 Shooting Star, and the U.S.'s first jet fighter plane in less than six months. This is the beginning of Skunk Works. And everybody realizes, or at least Kelly realizes, hey, this is something pretty special here. So I want to read a a little quote from the Skunk Works book. That primitive Skunk Works operation set the standards for what followed. The project was highly secret. Very high priority, and time was of the essence. The Air Corps had cooperated to meet all of Kelly's needs and then got out of his way. And boy, did they deliver.
0: So the P-80 would eventually give way to the F-104 Starfighter, which was another invention from Kelly and the team, a more modern jet aircraft. That was a highly decorated aircraft. Kelly would win the Collier Trophy for this. Yeah, his first one.
1: (laughs) Yep. So after the war, Kelly says hey, this is special. We should keep this going. And the Gross Brothers and Lockheed's management agree. And they say, yes, you can keep this quote unquote skunkworks division going as long as it doesn't take too much money and it doesn't distract from your duties in the rest of the company as (laughs) now the new chief engineer. So Kelly is both the chief engineer of
0: all of Lockheed and running skunkworks at the same time. It's insane. This not taking too much money thing does become a core tenet of the Skunkworks operation because you can sort of get around management's ire and management's need to report to shareholders and things like that if you're doing amazing things and pulling rabbits out of hats. And when it's not going well, you're not a huge burden.
1: Yeah. So I'm going to read a little more from Skunkworks here. So Kelly and his handful of bright young designers that he selected took over some empty space in building 82. This is... A building on the Lockheed campus, which is right next to the Burbank Municipal Airport. It's an unmarked building. Literally like this is a commercial airport that average people are taking off of every single day. And this is where Skunk Works is housed. And this is where the U-2 and the SR-71 and the Stealth Fighter are all built right there. Crazy. So, that it continues. Those guys brainstormed what if questions about the future needs of commercial and military aircraft, and if one of their ideas resulted in a contract to build an experimental prototype, Kelly would borrow the best people he could find in the main plant to get the job done. That way, the overhead was kept low and the financial risks to the company stayed small. His small group were all young and high-spirited, who thought nothing of working out of a phone booth if necessary as long as they were designing and building airplanes. All that mattered to Kelly was our proximity to the production floor. A stone's throw was too far away. He wanted us, the engineers and designers, only steps away from the shop workers to make quick structural or parts changes.
0: Yes, I love this. I think this is a huge learning for anyone, certainly in manufacturing, but it applies in lots of other elements of business too. Keeping your designers as close as possible to production so the game of telephone is as short as possible and is incredibly valuable. And having the designers being able to glance up at their desk and see like literally the way things are being manufactured so they can say, oh, that looked good in the diagram, but in practice, you have to bring this big thing around over here. Maybe we can make that better the next time we design it. It's just such a great key insight. The other thing on the small number of people, this gets to the skunk works rules. And Kelly created this incredible document, 14 rules that we'll link to in the show notes. Oh, yeah. The third of which, I mean, they're all incredible. The third of which really applies here. And I quote, The number of people having any connection with the project must be restricted in an almost vicious manner. Use a small number of good people, 10% to 25% compared to the so-called normal systems.
1: Everywhere else, not only were the actual shop floors and the line workers completely separate from the white collar engineers and designers, even the engineers and designers were separate. There would be like a thermodynamics department, intake department, these were all completely separate. That's crazy, like these people should all be together, all of them building relationships, collaborating, working together to produce the very best
0: product. And you see this in products in the future too, the iPhone, the iPod, I mean, you read the stories about the early teams there, six, eight, 10 people. They're all full stack. So there's these unicorns that cross disciplines and they're 10x, 100x engineers. So you really only need a handful of really good people.
1: So, Ben, you mentioned rule number three. I think it's worth going through a bunch of Kelly's rules. We can learn so much from this. So I think it's worth going through a lot of them. But first, we have one of our very favorite acquired companies to tell you about.
0: Yes, Vanta. And we have something all new to share this time. Of course, you know by now that Vanta enables companies to generate more revenue by getting their compliance certifications. And of course, you also know it's amazing for startups since it's the fastest and easiest way to get SOC 2, ISO 27001, and other certifications that as a small startup, you just would not otherwise have the resources for. But today... We want to talk about why Vanta is also the best security compliance platform as you hit hyper growth and scale your company into a larger enterprise.
1: Yes, Vanta now has a tremendous amount of customization to meet your increasingly complex security needs. If you're already a larger company and in the past you maybe showed Vanta to your compliance department and heard, oh, we already have a process in place, we can't integrate this. Now, even if you already have a SOC 2, Vanta makes maintaining your compliance way more efficient and robust. For example, just last week, they launched vendor risk management. Take for example, oh, I don't know, The aircraft industry, where you have tons of (laughs) subcontractors that are working. You don't know what risks they have. You need to know this. This allows your company to quickly understand the security posture of the vendors that you are choosing in a standardized way that cuts down on security review times. This is awesome.
0: Yeah. And on a customization front, they also now enable custom frameworks built around your custom security controls and policies. Of course, that's also in addition to the fact that with Vanta, you don't just become compliant once. You stay compliant with real-time data pulled from all your systems, and you get a Vanta trust page report to prove it. So whether you're an early-stage startup or a large enterprise, demonstrating trust with Vanta is a no-brainer. We have a brand new offer from them for the first time in the company's history. If you Ooh. click the link in the show notes or go to vanta.com slash acquired, you get a free trial. And if you decide that you love it, you will also get $1,000 off when you become a paying customer since Vanta loves Acquired. So to get both of those, remember, click the link in the show notes, go to vanta.com slash acquired, and our thanks to Vanta. All right, David, so what makes Skunk Works work?
1: Well, to start, I think as we've been talking about for the last little bit here, it all kind of stems from Kelly and his attitude. And that was that all that mattered, literally the only thing that matters is rapid delivery of superior products. And that was driven by the expedient requirements of World War II, literally saving America and the free world, and then the Cold War, which is gonna come in in a big way in a second here. But, you know, all this is funny, and I sort of thought reading this, listeners might be thinking, isn't all that matters in any business rapid delivery of superior products? Like, why is this (laughs) new and unique and different? The reality, though, is that that's almost never the case. Sometimes for good reasons, sometimes for bad reasons. There's politics, there's personalities, there's the Buffett and Munger. Institutional imperative term, which is the tendency of organizations to mindlessly either keep doing the same thing or do whatever their competitors are doing without thinking about it. You know, those are all the bad reasons. Well,
0: and you rarely have an existential threat that you must cut through all the red tape. It's like Operation Warp Speed, the way that we got the vaccines as fast as we did. If the world is on the line, what can you do away with in your processes and which people can you hand select to solve it? And the stakes are the highest. This is going to be a
1: huge
0: theme. Think about this as
1: we go through the whole episode and we're going to talk about this a lot more as we go in in the end. Competition and existential competition kind of has a way of bringing out the best in people. So those are the bad reasons why all that matters all the time is not rapid delivery of superior products. There also are some good reasons, you know, like people's health and livelihoods and families and fairness and all that. Like those are actually kind of valid reasons to question whether all that matters is rapid delivery of superior
0: products. I mean, Kelly ended up in the hospital with ulcers and heart problems. And of course, everyone at the skunk works, much like many other places, were chain smoking. It was not a healthy place to have a life.
1: No. And a lot of these guys had major health issues and they were Unfortunately, and super narrow-mindedly, all guys during this era. But nonetheless, what Skunk Works became is this incredible organization. I think we should study a few of these rules.
0: Did we pick the same ones? I'm so curious. (laughs) We got 14 to pick from. Let's see. Let's pick three that we're going to highlight here. We already talked about number three. What are your others?
1: It's funny. My number one was the one that you highlighted. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, the next one I want to talk about is, uh, I think this is rule number one, maybe the skunkworks manager must be delegated practically complete control of his program in all aspects.
0: Yeah, I mean, this is like the auteur theory. Like, you have to have a single person's vision and the buck stopping with a single person who has ultimate control and isn't a squeezed middle manager.
1: And especially, think about the environment in which they're operating and think about the environment in which defense contractors operate today. The number of stakeholders and managers and career people, military, politicians, industry who have their fingers in the pie here makes it impossible to get anything done. What Kelly's saying is none of that. Nobody has authority except me.
0: Yeah, he's the program manager for any given program that they're working on, any new aircraft. And also he's the guy flying to Washington to interface with the government. It's not like he's dealing with the engineers and then calling the sales force and being like, hey, can you go to a steak dinner with our guy in Washington? No, it's Kelly.
1: And he's also, in the beginning, this changes over time as things get more complex, but, like, he's also the guy flying the planes, doing the test flights. <laughs> <laughs> he pretty rapidly stops doing that. But, like, yeah. the point stands, there's not armies of people working on these things. At its most productive, Skunk Works, I think, was about maybe 50 designers and engineers and maybe 100 machinists and shop people. Like, this is not a large
0: organization. It's crazy. Before I give you the other two that I had pulled out, I'm curious on your last one.
1: My last one is the last one of the rules and i think this is so important
0: yes this is one of mine too
1: so the rule is because only a few people will be used in engineering and most other areas ways must be provided to reward good performance by pay not based on number of personnel supervised so kelly has a quote about this in the book in the main plant They give raises on the basis of the more people supervised. I give raises to the guy who supervises the least. That means he's doing more and taking more responsibility. But most executives don't think like that at all. They're empire builders. This is so
0: important. Yep, totally agree. And in fact, it's thinking like a capitalist too. I mean, it's really like, how can we achieve the most with the least? Not how can we achieve a fixed amount with a fixed margin?
1: Imagine if you and I were compensated on Acquired based on the number of people we had working on the show <laughs> rather than on the quality of the We'd episodes. We'd be making
0: nothing still. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> All right, my last one, and it's funny that we overlapped on two of three, is a very simple drawing, this is rule number four, and drawing release system with great flexibility for making changes must be provided. And this also gets back to the sort of spirit of skunk works which is we have to be process light and we have to be able to iterate very quickly and we have to be able to sort of pull the ripcord from any stage in the process to say okay we're abandoning it at this stage we're going back to an earlier stage we're redesigning this thing and then we're going to catch back up with our process rather than getting all the way through and in fact the way that many modern dod contracts work you deliver your prototype to the dod you don't get to like play with it first and then go rev a few times before you deliver it and the skunkworks way was look we're going to iterate on our drawings and we're going to create a drawing release system so that we can effectively have version control on the designs you have to prototype you have to afford yourself the flexibility to test your own designs and to quickly make changes on your own terms
2: yeah.
1: Kelly's philosophy is we're gonna deliver you an operational airplane, as opposed to like we're gonna deliver you a set of plans for a prototype that you play around with. Yep. So there's one more thing before we move on and talk about all the amazing things that Skunkworks did during the Cold War that I wanna point out about the organizational dynamics here that isn't in any of the rules, because I think it's just sort of a implicit, unspoken assumption, especially during that time with what they were doing. And that's that all of this only works if the small group of people that you've brought together are highly motivated. And I think the reason this was taken for granted for like all of Skunk Works heyday was, you know, hey, the mission here is preserving your life and the lives of your loved ones and America from losing World War II and then, you know, having nuclear bombs dropped on it by the Soviet Union. You don't really need a lot of extra cajoling or motivation here.
0: Totally. And you got to think back. This was a time where American superiority was not guaranteed. I think we have a reasonable amount of complacency today. And you could say this is because of the military industrial complex. Americans feel very secure. Sure, there are enemies, but are we going to be fine? Totally. We don't need to think about this that much. We can decide to prioritize other things and have passions and say, yeah, other people can take care of the national good because, like, yeah, we'll be fine either way. That was not the belief at the time.
1: No, there's this great quote in Skunk Works where Ben Rich tells the story of his first day in Skunk Works where he's shown the U-2 prototype. We're going to talk all about the U-2 in a minute here. But literally day one, he's shown the prototype of this top, highly classified, highly secret airplane that nobody can know about. He's a new recruit. He gets to see it day one. He says, The full weight of government secrecy fell on me like a sack of cement that day inside Kelly Johnson's guarded domain. Learning an absolutely momentous national security secret just took my breath away, and I left work bursting with both pride and energy to be on the inside of a project so special and closely held, but also nervous about the burdens it would impose on my life. This is exactly to your point. You know, with great power comes great responsibility here.
0: Yep. Okay, so we've got these operating principles of why the Skunk Works works now. And they were established to build the P-80 shooting star, but they didn't stop after that. So what are the machines that sort of unfold from here?
1: Yeah, all right. So a minute ago, I was talking about the two problems that America and its allies have at the end of World War II. One was the jets. Skunk Works addresses that with the P-80 shooting star. The other problem is... Yeah, we're going to win this war, but there's a whole new war that's just about to start.
0: Yeah, and the war we're coming out of is World War II, but of course the Cold War against the Russians is just starting. And this is
1: so hard for us to process today, but doing the research, I really felt it. I think for a lot of people, the stakes and the pressure and the worry about the Cold War was greater than World War II.
0: Yeah, that's a great point. When the Americans entered World War II, we had reason to believe that we could come in and win. The Cold War, I think, to the American psyche felt very different. Very
1: different. I think we had good reason to believe we were not going to win. So right after the war, Churchill comes to America and gives his famous Iron Curtain speech in Fulton, Missouri, that an Iron Curtain has descended over Europe in the form of the Soviet Union. And then before the end of the decade, I didn't really realize the timeline on this, in August 1949, the Soviet Union detonates its first nuclear bomb. And nobody believed that they were gonna have the bomb that quickly or that powerfully. And not only did they have the bomb, but whether this was real or not or positioning or you know, why it was probably positioning, people really believe that the Soviets and Khrushchev's intention is to use the bomb against America. If they ever believe that they could do so without fear of retaliation, that they could knock us out first, that they would do a first strike and use nuclear weapons on America. This is kind of embodied in the um, mistranslated, but kind of how people felt about it. Khrushchev's statement at a uh, reception in Poland in 1956 that quote, we will bury you. People are terrified. Hmm. And this kicks off the Cold War arms race. And people probably know and learn about mutually assured destruction and deterrence. This really was the policy of the military and the American government that we need to have capabilities to deter the Soviet Union from launching a first nuclear strike against us by being able to guarantee and have them know that we guarantee that if they do so, we will destroy them. So they can't do this Because if they do, they will be destroyed. That was the whole policy. And that's like a really scary place to be. It's not like when you're entering World War II of like, oh, yeah, we're fighting these people. There's active fighting. And, you know, we think we're probably going to win. This is like if somebody over there in the Kremlin decides one day that they think they can win, we're all going to die. Right. One more thing I want to say about this, you know, lest you think that this is just like, oh, David read a bunch of history books and got all riled up and got scared. In 1955, there was a national poll of U.S. adults that asked the question, what do you think you are most likely to die from? And over half of America responded that they thought they were most likely to die in thermonuclear war Wow! above any other cause. Let that sink in. Over half of the
0: country thought they were going to die in nuclear war. Horrifying. Horrifying. And so... If the battle is being fought in this sort of trust in mutually assured destruction, so you sort of think you can't get away with making the first strike, and it's this war of perception. In a war of perception, intelligence is paramount.
1: Bingo. It is the most important thing. Even more important than your ability to strike and wage war is your ability to know what the current state of the opponent's ability is to strike and wage war. So that means that the battleground is no longer the use of weapons, but the intelligence about the existence and positioning of weapons. And nobody is better suited than Skunkworks to be the U.S. government and military's primary, sounds cliche to say, but sword and shield during this war.
0: Yes, so this brings us to the U-2 spy plane. and. This plane serves such an important purpose that ended up being brought into service in 1955 and was only decommissioned in 1989.
1: Yeah, incredible.
0: Now there are many airplane programs that have 10, 20, 25-year timeframes. For very different reasons. Yes, that we will talk about in the military-industrial complex. But the U-2 was basically the first time that... America found a plane that it could use for a long time and wasn't rapidly replaced by the next best thing.
1: Yeah. Okay. So why is this idea of a spy plane so important? You know, intelligence is the primary battlefront of this war. You think intelligence, you think spying, you think spies, right? People, you know, double agents and whatnot. The problem is that's a pretty uh, noisy channel, shall we say. (laughs) It's only going to get you so far. It comes with lots of risk. There might be misinformation. You could have triple agents. Like, who knows what's going
0: on? Lots of games of telephone. It would be pretty great if you just had a picture of, like, do they have nuclear weapons or not?
1: And where are they? (laughs) Yes. It would be really great if, you know, you could fly a plane over... Russia and take pictures and understand all this. Because there's no satellites yet. Oh, are there satellites? (laughs) We'll talk about that a little later. But you can't just fly a plane into Russia and do that. It's a closed country. The Russians are going to shoot you down if you do it.
0: We're not technically at war, so it would violate international treaties to go into their airspace. We would start the war by doing that.
1: Exactly. So the first thing, it's funny, it's kind of in the news now that China's doing this now. The first thing we try is unmanned spy balloons. (laughs) We send balloons over Russia. Failed weather experiments. Yeah, failed weather experiments. Yeah, that fails on many fronts, including actually returning usable photos of Soviet nuclear installations. So really, it becomes clear that what's required is an entirely new type of airplane that can either do one of two things, and ideally both, fly over Russia stealthily and undetected by radar, or two, fly high enough or fast enough that they can't shoot it down, even if they do.
0: And so being the ambitious organization that they are, tries for option one. And we don't frankly know very much about what Russia's capabilities are. So we're pretty sure that we can build some airplane that flies high enough that their radar systems won't detect us. And great. So let's do that.
1: Yeah, great. So this is interesting. What government agency contracts them to do this? It's not the military we're in the spy game now it's not the army not the navy not the air force it's the cia they are building their own air capabilities and all of the work that skunkworks does here and for many years to come is for the cia yep cue the uh james bond theme (laughs) so what exactly is the challenge that skunkworks has laid out in front of them for designing this new spy plane well at the time The maximum altitude that airplanes flew was about 40,000 feet. Some specialized aircraft could get closer to 50K, but that was it.
0: The U.S. thought that the Soviets' best interceptor fighter aircraft could get to about 45,000 feet.
1: Yep. And we also thought that their radar wouldn't function above like 55,000, right? I think
0: about 65,000 to be safe. We were like, all right, as long as we clear 65,000, we should be higher than their radar could even detect, and certainly higher than their fighters could come get us.
1: Right. So the CIA's spec for Skunk Works for the U-2 is to fly at 70,000 feet. Now, there are a couple problems with that. (laughs) (laughs) One is that normal jet fuel doesn't work at that altitude. You know, at that altitude, the pressure, the temperature, everything about the environment, you're Getting to be closer to space than you are to normal Earth atmosphere, and things start going wrong. So uh, that one, they actually subcontract with Shell Oil to make a new formulation of jet fuel that does work up there. So, you know, that problem is solved. Problem number two is maybe a little bigger, and that is that humans cannot survive at
0: that (laughs) altitude. (laughs) So certainly you need a pressurized cabin, but if something were to happen and you needed to be out of the cabin, you know, cold, no air, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, and I don't
1: know the technical details, but I think even the cabin pressurization technology that existed then was not going to cut it at 70,000 feet. Right. So you basically
0: need a spacesuit.
1: Exactly. Some of this technology came from like diving suits and some other things that came before this, but I think this was the big coming together of the technology that created the spacesuit, and that's what they put these pilots in. Wow. Pretty cool, and obviously the spacesuit would go on to be used for many many applications and everything happening in space now so lockheed and skunkworks win the contract from the cia they start working on this plane
0: in sometime in 1953 incredibly top secret. We wouldn't reveal the fact that this existed to the Russians, our own people, for years and years and years. I mean, this is like
1: the quote from earlier that we read from Ben Rich when he started working on this project day one and saw the prototype and then it hit him like a sack of cement, you know, how important this was. So Skunk Works completes and delivers the plane by July 1955. So like a year and a half and for a total project cost... Of $3.5 million. That's an M. That is not a B. A year and a half and $3.5 million for one of the most important products and pieces of technology in American history. Astounding. This is what Skunk Works is capable of.
0: So they're flying higher than any plane has ever flown before. They're using a different type of fuel. People are flying in spacesuits for the first time. Feels like to be a reconnaissance aircraft, you would also need one other key component in order to achieve the mission of spying on the enemy. Yeah, to take photos, you need a camera. Indeed. And you would need an all-new type of camera with all-new type of lens capable of taking photographs of something 70,000 feet away from you through, you know, a whole bunch of atmosphere. Gosh, if only the U.S. had someone who was just incredible at this sort of pioneering optics technology.
1: Indeed, the U.S. did. And that was Dr. Edwin Land and the Polaroid company who subcontracted and created all of that. And actually, I believe it was Edwin Land himself that helped convince President Eisenhower to even pursue this project in the first place. He was like, we can build the camera that can do this. If we can get the airplane built, we can do this project.
0: This blew my mind. It's so cool to see the intersections of different innovators throughout history. I mean, Edwin Land is the man who inspired Steve Jobs, and he's building the U2's camera.
1: Oh, just wait. We are going to have a lot more tech in Silicon Valley and Apple stuff that's going to come up here in just a little bit. So they built the plane you got to test this thing. They're not going to roll it on the runway in Burbank and take <laughs> off and, uh, you know, just head for the Soviet Union. you got to test it, and, uh, you know, it's got to be secret and whatnot. And remember, Kelly Johnson, one of his big principles is, like, we test our products. You, the government, don't test our products. We test our products.
0: And we should be clear, this U-2 spy plane looks crazy.
1: It has a 100-foot wingspan.
0: Yeah. This thing, if you saw it taking off, you would be like— Okay, I've seen airplanes. That thing is completely different. So it's not like they could disguise it like you need to figure out somewhere in the United States where there's basically nobody so that you can test this thing. Oh,
1: this is so fun. Oh, the smile on our faces is like (laughs) you can't see us, but it is stretching out of the room here. Yeah, you can't just paint this thing like a school bus and pretend it's something else. So they need to find a suitable test site. They go scouting all across the Western U.S. and kind of remote areas. Kelly Johnson is sort of like Sam Walton in his prop plane, scouting out for, you know, Walmart (laughs) locations, flying sideways.
0: And then they get an idea. And that idea is, where is a place where even if there were people before, there sure aren't people now? Because nobody in their right mind would want to be anywhere close to where we just tested our nuclear bombs. (laughs) And they go, oh, as long as we figure out that it's safe, that would be a perfect place for us to test this airplane.
1: So they find a dry lake bed in Nevada called Groom Lake. And there's a quote from Kelly Johnson here about this in the book. We flew over it, and within 30 seconds, you knew that this was the place. It was right by a dry lake. Man alive, we looked at that lake and we all looked at each other. It was another Edwards, like Edwards Air Force Base. So we wheeled around, landed on that lake, taxied up to one end of it. It was a perfect natural landing field, as smooth as a billiard table without anything being done to it.
0: How insane is it that, This is where we were testing nukes. I actually do not understand how there was not radiation poisoning. And I I don't fully understand the half-life and all that needs to be done. But, like, how is that safe? Yeah, it's insane. And not
1: only were there recently nuclear tests happening right nearby, I believe that nuclear testing continued right nearby while they're using this site, Groom Lake, to test the U-2. 100%.
0: It's the craziest thing. They had to, like, sometimes take some time between the most recent nuclear test and when they wanted to go fly. Because these sites are, like, I don't know, 12 miles away from each other or something pretty close. If you're curious, listeners, there's this great uh, documentary on Amazon called Secrets in the Sky, the untold story of Skunk Works" that has a bunch of footage of all of this.
1: Wow. So, listeners, if you haven't caught on already... The location that we are talking about.
0: Nevada test site in the middle of the desert.
1: Nuclear, some really strange-looking flying aircraft. This is Area 51. (laughs) Skunk Works creates Area 51.
0: And of course there's rumors of UFOs there. They want to keep everyone away. For the people who they can't keep away, they're going to see some really weird flying stuff. So of course the rumors are going to start. It's all goodness for Skunk Works. This cover is great.
1: Oh, it's even better than that. I can't remember which plane and or when this was, but at one point in time the one of the test flights crashed and you know the pilot survived and like somebody saw him. He was wearing a spacesuit. Nobody knew what a <laughs> spacesuit was. Of course he looked like a freaking alien.
0: Right. It would be another 10 years before we would have the moon missions.
1: Yeah. It's so funny. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah, it's all skunkworks in the U2. Wow. And then
0: The blackbird and everything else we're going to get into later in the story all happening out of area 51 the prep work that the pilots had to go through before getting on these planes too were nuts they needed to breathe pure oxygen for two hours to remove all the nitrogen from their blood in case they had to eject because remember these are test pilots on a super experimental aircraft they were often ejecting or they were often you know things went wrong in these yeah a bunch of people died doing this like we should say yeah. I mean, a great sacrifice to bring this program and subsequent Skunk Works programs into the world. But basically what was happening is if you didn't breathe pure oxygen for two hours, you could get the bends, you know, for anyone who's scuba dived and you can't fly right afterwards, from ejecting. And so... It's like, well, if you managed to get out of the aircraft before it crashed, then that could kill you. So you needed to make sure that this sort of oxygenating of your blood and getting rid of all the nitrogen made it so that if you did need to eject, then you would survive this as well. Yeah,
1: yeah. crazy. Okay, so they test the U-2 at Area 51. So great. They get it up and running and in active service as an operational spy plane, pretty much the world's first, at least of this type, within a year. The first Soviet Union overflight happens on July 4th, 1956. Of course it was. Of course it was July 4th. Now, this is so interesting. There's a whole bunch of things that happen when they take out. Like, they don't know what's going to happen. Is this thing going to work? Are the Soviets going to see us? Like, we're going to learn so much here. You can't script this stuff. The Soviets tracked it on radar, even at 70,000 feet. The whole way. The whole way. Right from it takes off, the whole flight path through... Russia. They knew everything that we were doing.
0: We were super about their radar. They didn't just have low altitude radar. They were capable of radar that could see straight up into space. Wherever we were flying, they were going to see us.
1: Yeah, which we had no idea. So we, we learned this as part of it. So here's what's funny. We know that they see it from takeoff. They track the U-2 the whole way. This whole top secret program like, oh, no, it's busted. They see it, but it turns out they can't hit it. So, you know, a whole bunch of fighter jets scramble, and the fighter jets, they can't get up that high, so they can't intercept it. They launch surface-to-air missiles. The missiles can't hit anything that high up. So the U-2 just flies along. They're tracking
0: it the whole way. There's planes flying along behind it, and they can't do anything. But at least we get the intel now in the U.S. that, okay, (laughs) they can see up here, and so it's probably just a matter of time before they're capable of shooting something down up here, too.
1: Yes, but here's what's so interesting. Remember, this whole war, like, God, it's fascinating. It's a war, but it's not a war. It's a war of perception. So in that flight, we get incredible photographic observational evidence, and we would fly so many missions over Russia for the next few years, getting this incredible intelligence. The Soviets never say anything, because if they were to say anything and say that they tracked us into it, then they would be admitting that they were powerless to stop it. This war of perception, like it's so crazy, the incentives and motivations here, but it makes sense. They're not going to say anything and reveal the program. So it remains top secret because if they did, their sort of position and posturing of strength would be compromised.
0: And neither country really wants to be at war. So we're both maintaining this. uh, We're not at war, you know, and we're not going to tell you that we're preparing for if we need to be. But of course, we're going to do whatever we can to understand the best about our enemy or not our enemy, other countries that we're not at war with. Adversary. Right. And I actually
1: think there may be, you know, military historians that understand this better than us, but I think this was actually an optimal outcome for the U.S. Because remember, just like you were saying, Ben, nobody actually wants to go to war here. The goal is for both sides to keep each other in check. And so this, the U-2 and these reconnaissance missions become a major chess piece for us on our side of the board to keep the Soviets in check. We like this state, I think, that they know about it, but nobody talks about it.
0: The other crazy thing is this camera is incredible. If you look up photos taken by the U-2 spy plane, it is remarkable what in the mid-50s this thing was capable of taking photographs of from 70,000 feet.
1: The engineering all around that went into this is just incredible. I mean, you could do a whole podcast just about the technical aspects of the engineering advances.
0: And it basically works. They find a whole bunch of nuclear test sites. They find where missiles are kept. We basically have a real-time count of the Soviet Union's warheads, the Soviet Union's fighter jets, the capabilities that they have with their radar because it's painting our airplanes. So we now know that that exists. Mission accomplished in spades on this thing.
1: We talked earlier about... The cost of three and a half million dollars. You know, I think you could make an analogy to like the Louisiana Purchase in terms of like best deals that the United States government yeah. ever got relative to like the benefit to America. This is
0: huge. Arguably, the last great deal they got from Lockheed Martin, but yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, no, there's some more that know uh, we just don't know about yet, but uh, we're going to talk about in a minute. So this all continues. We fly dozens, maybe hundreds of U two missions over the next few years. The Russians are constantly trying to shoot them down. They fail. Nobody says anything. And then on May 1st, 1960, ironically on May Day, we launched the U-2 program on July 4th, and it ends, at least over the Soviet Union, on May Day 1960, the Soviets finally have developed a missile that can reach 70,000 feet with accuracy, and they shoot down a U-2. This was the first time in history that a ground-to-air missile had shot down an airplane. I didn't realize this, I read that. I was like, oh, whoa, I guess maybe the technology didn't exist during World War II, uh, the Korean War, and um, so this was a major historical moment in so many ways. America and the CIA and the government, the president, their they're like, okay.
0: Right, what do we do? America's posture is we were never there. Right,
1: but we know now that like the motivation for Russia not to talk about it now is gone. Now they can position this as like, hey, we're so strong that we Mm. can keep people out, we can shoot down aircraft up to 70,000. We expect them to uh, say something right away. A couple of weeks go by. They say nothing. Quite surprising.
0: All we know is we've lost contact with our pilot and we didn't see them come back and land. So we presume that they shot down our pilot, but they're not saying anything. Well, we don't really know. We presume the plane was shot down. And we presume that if this
1: plane was shot down, as we think, probably the pilot was killed. I mean, like, You shoot down a plane from 70,000 feet. Right. Probably the pilot was killed. Well... That's
0: 14 miles in the air.
1: Yeah. No. (laughs) The pilot was not killed. The pilot's name was Francis Gary Powers. Pilot Powers. If you know anything about U.S. history, you probably know his name. And you probably know that he miraculously did survive and was captured and interrogated and probably tortured by the Russians. And that this was the revealing of the U-2 program. So what happens? Turns out that there was a big summit in Paris scheduled for later in May between Eisenhower and Khrushchev. And Khrushchev announces on the eve of the summit that they have captured an American pilot, they have captured this new plane, that the U.S. has been illegally and in a provocatory manner flying over Soviet airspace, They have defended their country and shot it down, and this creates a huge mess. Eisenhower first denies this and then admits it. When we realize that, like, oh, shoot, this pilot is still alive, he's confessed, like, wow, this is a disaster. Yeah. So, but I guess there probably was a path where this could have led to escalation. Fortunately, it does not. But it does mean that the U-2 program, at least over Russia, is done. We don't fly any more U-2s over Russia. We can't. I mean, if we were to do it at this point, we know they can see us. They now can talk about that they can see us and they can shoot us
0: down. Like, it would escalate to war if we kept doing this. We have to stop. The U-2 becomes quite useful for other locations around the globe, but not over the USSR itself. Right.
1: This, though, is a huge, huge problem. This was the most important thing in the war, and now it's gone, right? We now have no way to take photos Of military sites in Russia, because we can't fly planes over there anymore, right? We're blind. What do we do? What do we do? Well, the world would not know until 1995, when this would all become declassified under the Clinton administration. But that was only true for about three months, thanks to another super secretive Lockheed division that figured out another way for us to take pictures of the Soviet Union.
0: Yes. And this, listeners, is where if you read Skunk Works or watched documentaries about Skunk Works, what we're about to talk about is not in any of those. This is a completely separate story that takes place in a different place in California that is a detour from our Skunk Works story. And we'll be back because, my God, did Skunk Works do some incredible things after the U2. But before we do that, we want to take you to Northern California and the origins of Silicon Valley and Lockheed's participation in that. And this is a great time to tell you about one of our other favorite companies that is back as a sponsor of season 12 is our good friends at Tiny, the Berkshire Hathaway of the internet. Tiny, as you know, listeners, has built and acquired the world's premier collection of wonderful internet businesses.
1: And this time in this year is So great for the Berkshire meeting and Tiny because just like Berkshire, Tiny is now a public company. They're a publicly traded holding company. We're so happy for them.
0: Yep. And they really are becoming sort of the buyer of choice for wonderful internet businesses. I mean, There's a lot of people who are talking about how great it is to buy small companies, and especially when they're these profitable businesses with 30 to 40 percent operating margins. Maybe they're doing five, maybe they're doing 10 million in revenue. There's a whole like subcategory of Twitter devoted to this. And I'm sort of like watching all these tweets and I'm like, okay, geniuses. Like, do you remember like what Andrew and Chris were talking about? I don't know, a decade ago. And so Tiny has sort of proved at this point that they can do this very well, that they can continue to compound capital, that they can let these businesses grow and run. I mean, you think about businesses like Dribbble or Pixel Union, Creative Market, 8020. The last 15 years, Tiny has just been buying businesses, they've let them run. They empower their own independent managers to run them, oftentimes the founders of the business, but oftentimes professional CEOs that they bring in to run them and take them to kind of the next right stage of the company. And what's great, especially now that Tiny is a
1: bigger scale and now being a public company, they've always historically done this with bootstrapped businesses, which they certainly still do. They now do it with venture-backed businesses too, especially in this environment. there's so many businesses over the last couple of years that took VC dollars and kind of no longer makes sense in a VC portfolio. And these companies used to be orphaned within venture firms. It was really a uh, less than ideal situation, but Tiny can now come in and acquire those companies and has been doing that to great effect.
0: Yep. If you're evaluating your next fundraising round and you're sort of looking at, actually what your business's natural growth rate is or natural margin profile, and you're like, you know what, this is not going to be a $10 billion Uber-style business. This is just a regular good business on the internet. I think you should talk to Tiny. It ends up being a total win for everyone, and this is a product that absolutely needs to exist in the market, especially, especially in this moment. Shoot them a note, hi at tiny.com, and just tell them that Ben and David sent you. Okay, David, so I had forgotten about this story. I knew a little bit of it from watching Steve Blank's great talk, maybe five, eight years ago, The Secret History of Silicon Valley. But you sort of found the last 20 minutes and then just dug in like a splinter on this particular moment in history and how it is all tied into Lockheed Martin. So where are we going?
1: Yeah, well, and it's even lesser known than that. Only certain versions of that talk that Steve has given contain the Lockheed story, because so much of it has only recently been declassified, a lot of it even after he first started giving this talk. So what really turned me on to this was some of the chapters in Beyond the Horizons, even though that book was written in the late 90s. I started digging in, and then I started watching some YouTube videos with some of the people involved in this, and I was like, oh my god, there is this incredible story here that we don't realize
0: Yes. In typical David Rosenthal fashion, you sent me a note the other day and said, you have to listen to this starting at eight minutes and 50 seconds. And I was like, what is this? And I click and it's a guy at a podium with a terrible recording setup from the the IEEE Silicon Valley history video. So industry association, this thing has 124 views after being posted seven years ago. (laughs) Incredible. (laughs) This stuff is buried.
1: I honestly can't believe it, and I'm so glad that we get to tell it here. All right, let's set the context. So if we rewind back to World War II, one thing we kind of mentioned here now, as we were talking about the U-2 and the Russians tracking it on radar, but we didn't talk about during World War II, was the importance of radar. Now, so much of World War II was an air war both in Europe and then especially in the Pacific. And the development of both radar and anti-radar technologies was paramount in the war efforts. Yes, there was lots of land-based fighting and tanks and all that stuff, but World War II was the first real air war. And obviously that importance of radar continued into the Cold War, just like we were talking about with U-2 flights. Now, during World War II, where was all of the U.S. and Allied radar work and research being done. It was primarily being done out of two institutions in Boston, MIT with the Radiation Laboratory or the Rad Lab, and Harvard with the Harvard Radio Research Laboratory. Now here's what's interesting. Neither of these two labs at MIT and Harvard existed before the war. The government directed MIT and Harvard to set them up as part of the war effort. They didn't exist before, and then MIT and Harvard, very fortunately for California and Silicon Valley, shut them down after Mm. the war. Now, it turns out that the head of the Harvard lab was a professor named Frederick Terman. Might ring some bells for people, especially people who went to Stanford. Terman was probably the world's leading expert on radio engineering and also vacuum tubes and early computing. Except Terman wasn't actually a Harvard professor. Terman was a Stanford professor. He was just on loan to Harvard during the war years because that's where the government set up the radio labs.
0: And the government allocated millions and millions of dollars of funding to Harvard and MIT and something like $50,000 to Stanford. All of the funding for this was Harvard and MIT.
1: Yes, they assembled all of the world's experts and Terman was arguably one of, if not the leading world expert in radio engineering, assembled them there in Boston, I guess in Cambridge, at Harvard and MIT. Cambridge residents would get mad at us if we say Boston. (laughs) So after the war, Terman comes back to Stanford because Harvard shut down the lab. He comes back to Stanford and he does three things. First, he recruits away... All of the best people that he worked with at the Harvard Radio Lab from universities all over the country, he recruits them to Stanford.
0: And he gives them tenure immediately. Yes. He's like, I want to make this deal as sweet as possible for you because I want to will Stanford into existence as an engineering institution.
1: Yes, of the highest order. So that's one. Two, soon after he gets back to Stanford, he becomes the provost of the entire university. And as provost, he completely changes the way tech transfer is done at Stanford. No other university has as good of a tech transfer policy as
0: Stanford. They're notoriously friendly.
1: Yes, notoriously friendly and everywhere else, including Harvard, MIT, Princeton, blah, 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 are notoriously unfriendly and hard to work with.
0: The classic story is Stanford owned 1% of Google at SpinOut, which ended up making them an ungodly amount of money because of how big Google became. And if that were at other universities, they would have said 50% is what we need to keep or 33% is what we need to keep. And they would have smothered the innovation before it could become commercially viable. Now, I sort of in the back of
1: my mind knew this because I had watched Steve Blank's talk many years ago, but I kind of forgotten. I just thought it was like, oh, well, that's because Stanford and Silicon Valley, like, we get it. We're smart. (laughs) Not that we're smarter, but there's this attitude of, you know, if you're in Silicon Valley, even to this day, you're like, yeah, we get how the culture works here. And like the East Coast doesn't get it.
0: As if this somehow existed a priori because it was just in the water and came from nowhere.
1: Not at all. It's all thanks to Terman and World War II and his experience at the radio lab. When he becomes provost, he's still a super devoted patriot. He knows how important this work is that it was during World War II, and he knows it's just as, if not more important, during the Cold War. So, what he does is he encourages students and professors to leave Stanford and go set up companies and work for defense firms and work for the military
0: not to make money, but to be like in the nation's service. He believed that the best way to serve your company was to leave the university, not do research there, but leave it, take the research and the people who are doing the research out, start a brand new company. He would try to help you find funding, which at that point, venture capital didn't exist. So he was introducing you to customers who could sort of pre-order from you to fund your research. And he basically believed that a commercial ecosystem leads to more innovation than one that is purely happening in academia and thus could better serve the needs of the nation. (laughs) Customers. Customer. Customer. (laughs) (laughs) Hang on to
1: that thought for one second. Yeah, he basically says this technology that you're working on, like it is a crime to keep it locked up in academia. It's the countries. You got to go develop this. We got to win the Cold War and, you know, get out of here. You know, we're not going to make this easy. Get out, go develop this.
0: And he would invest personally. He would sit on their boards. He would advise these companies. I mean, he sort of in a way where if you were doing all of this 10 years before, the university would have looked at you and said, what are you doing? You're encouraging this stuff to go away from us. Oh, it would have been career suicide in academia
1: yeah. to do this. Instead, at Stanford, it becomes the best thing you can do for your career because in Terman's mind, it's the best thing you can do for your country. Okay. So that was number two. Number three, he carves off a big part of the Stanford campus. Now, if you've ever been to the Stanford campus, my God, I was so lucky to spend two years there. It's like paved in gold. It's literally Shangri-La. They have so much land. It's the most beautiful, like idyllic place in the world. And like 80% of the land is
0: still undeveloped. Yeah.
1: They own like all the way out to the ocean, I think. Like it's crazy. So he carves off a part of the Stanford campus and develops it to be leased out as commercial space to corporations and the government to come, people to start companies, companies to come to build to participate on this ecosystem all right there on campus. It's initially called the Stanford Industrial Park. Today, it's called the Stanford Research Park. It still exists if you've ever been there. It's basically all of the office buildings up and down Page Mill Road in Palo Alto. So it's HP and Hewlett-Packard. We'll talk about that in a minute. It's Tesla's landlord today. It's VMware. It's where Xerox Park was. It's where Next was and Steve Jobs. It's where Facebook's office was for a while. This is where Theranos was. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> okay. So you might be like listening like, well, this is cool. Maybe I knew this stuff. Maybe I didn't. This is really fun Silicon Valley history. What does this have to do with Lockheed? Well, one of the very first tenants of Stanford Industrial Park. Ben, you were talking about customers, customer, who would go on to become the single largest employer in the area, in proto-Silicon Valley, by a huge margin, was a new secret division of Lockheed. This blew my mind. This secret division is called the Lockheed Missile Systems Division, later to be renamed the Lockheed Missiles and Space Company. And what LMSC, Lockheed Missiles and Space Company, did, I honestly think like it is bigger impact to the country, to the world, and certainly on business to Lockheed and to Silicon Valley than Skunkworks. This story is of a scale I don't know that we've ever really told on acquired.
0: There are a lot of Skunkworks devotees, David. That is quite the assertion to say that this is a bigger deal.
1: Well, let's talk about it. Listeners, you can judge. But they patterned themselves after Skunk Works and took so many Mm, of the Skunk Works management principles up to Silicon Valley. I was reading Skunk Works. I'm like, oh, yeah, so many of these principles, they sound like Silicon Valley principles. Well, there's a reason for that. Okay. So Lockheed makes the decision to start this new missile systems division in 1954. But it becomes so much more than that. So when Lockheed is starting this new division in 1954... Obviously, this is also top secret stuff, just like Skunk Works. So just like Skunk Works, they set up the new missiles division in Burbank, also in an unmarked building. They literally just copy paste Skunk Works right there in Burbank. And so
0: it starts in Southern California.
1: It does. But there's two problems with that. First, it's kind of unwieldy for a big company like Lockheed to have not one, but two super secret unmarked divisions right there on the main campus, you know, that aren't supposed to know about each other or anything else going on. Like you start getting into weird territory quickly. But it's important that the missiles division did start there because they took, as I said, a lot of Skunk Works management practices. The bigger problem is that it turns out that building missiles is a very different discipline than building airplanes. Because unlike airplanes, you don't have a pilot in the the missiles. So you need missiles guidance systems. And that means that you need radar and you need computing. And those two things are not what Southern California is good at. Mm. But you know what's really good at those things? Fred Terman up at Stanford and everybody that he's recruited, literally the best minds in the world at all of that who are now at Stanford and who are now being encouraged to go spin out and start companies who might just be subcontractors to a big missile system that you're Uh, trying to build.
0: Interesting. And this is cool. This is a part of the research that you did that I don't know much about. Yeah, this is great. So the next year, in 1955, Lockheed
1: moves the Missile Systems Division out of Burbank and up 101 to the Stanford Industrial Park. The very same Stanford Industrial Park that Fred Terman just carved out of the Stanford campus and developed on Page Mill Road. And Lockheed becomes one of the very first and biggest tenants of the Stanford now Research Park and is still there to this day. Wow. Now, they can't actually do everything they want to do on the Stanford campus. You're not going to build a missile and test it on the Stanford campus. So Lockheed, pretty quickly after they established themselves in Palo Alto, They also buy 275 acres just down the road in Sunnyvale, and they build a huge campus there, 137 buildings. So when Lockheed buys this, the population of Sunnyvale is less than 10,000
0: people. What?
1: Lockheed built
0: Sunnyvale. I didn't realize that. Wow. So how many people would eventually work in Sunnyvale at Lockheed? So by the end of the decade in
1: 1959 just 4 years later Lockheed Missile Systems employs almost 20,000 people in Palo Alto and Sunnyvale Whoa. and a few years later by the mid 60s they would employ 30,000 people this makes Lockheed by far the largest employer in this brand new proto Silicon Valley I mean remember I just said Lockheed built Sunnyvale you think of Sunnyvale Silicon Valley today like Yahoo and Intel and all that. Cisco. There was none of that. Lockheed built it. So Hewlett Packard was the largest tech company, computing company, you know, Silicon Valley company at the time. Hewlett and Packard were students of Fred Terman, and Fred encouraged them to spin out and start mm. Hewlett Packard. They were the largest new tech company. They only had 3,000 people one, two, three. Lockheed had 30,000 people.
0: Whoa. Oh my God. It's a funny story. I knew at least as of 2009 that the Lockheed campus in Sunnyvale was large because when I was interning at Cisco, I went on a run one morning and I was just sort of like exploring around and I ran into uh, Lockheed's campus and I got chased down by a security guard who's like, well, you can't just run in here. And I had my headphones in. I thought I was in big trouble.
1: Yeah. They had this huge structure called the blue cube that has since been, um, disassembled. It's not there anymore. But, you know, you need a, like, big hangar (laughs) that you're going to build missiles in. And they end up building a lot more than missiles we're going to talk about.
0: And you mentioned they need radio and they need computing. Computing basically wasn't a thing yet. I mean, Shockley co-invented the transistor just a few years before, started Shockley Semiconductor in 1955. The same time as Lockheed is coming to Silicon Valley. Right. And of course, Shockley is a predecessor to Fairchild Semiconductor, which is a predecessor to Intel. So like, they've got Turman's radio background, but there really weren't any people with compute experience yet. That was all happening concurrently all around them in Sunnyvale and Palo Alto.
1: So we talked about this a bunch, actually, on the first Sequoia Capital episode when we were telling Don Valentine's story. And at the time, when we were telling the story, we were like, oh, you know, Don, he was so legendary before he started Sequoia. He was the head of sales at Fairchild Semiconductor and the head of sales at National Semiconductor. And we sort of glossed over it. We were like, yeah, you know, he was mostly selling to defense companies. Well, who do you think he was selling to?
0: <laughs> I mean, he was selling to defense company.
1: Yes. Now, he was also selling around the country to other defense contractors, too. Lockheed wasn't the only company that was working on missiles, but I think they were the only one that was working on missiles in Silicon Valley. Wow! And by God, did they buy a lot of product out of all these startups and all of these Silicon startups that are coming out of Stanford and coming out of Shockley and just getting sprung up right there in Silicon Valley.
0: I can't believe that There were 10 times more employees at Lockheed in Silicon Valley than at HP in the late 50s. Yes, it is totally insane.
1: And so many people came through Lockheed into Silicon Valley, including one Jerry Wozniak, who moved himself and his young family out to this new Silicon Valley to become an engineer at... Lockheed Missiles and Space Company. That's right. Woz's dad, the reason that Steve Wozniak Whoa. grew up in Silicon Valley, is directly because of
0: Lockheed Martin. Oh, that is awesome. No Lockheed, no Woz in Silicon Valley, no Apple. No Apple. Crazy. Not to mention, there's a really interesting point here, which is you wouldn't have this open commercial spirit to Silicon Valley without Turman and without the belief that the right thing for America was for all these companies to become companies instead of academic research or spread around in other parts of the country, it creates the Silicon Valley ethos and creates Silicon Valley as the place where that ethos would thrive. And it's worth pointing out for people who don't spend a lot of time in the Bay Area, this has absolutely nothing to do with San Francisco. Nowadays, it's sort of this big blended soup of companies that have offices in both places, and you can drive or take the Takao train between them. Yeah, that's a recent phenomenon. San Francisco is a completely different universe at this point that is in zero part responsible for the growth of Silicon Valley.
1: Yeah. And before this time, before the 50s, there was no Silicon. It was called the Valley of Heart's Delight. (laughs) That was the (laughs) name for it. It wasn't Silicon Valley. Huh. Wild. Okay. So what was Lockheed actually doing there? We talked about them working on intercontinental ballistic missiles, ICBMs, and missile defense systems. I think they probably did continue to work on that. But there were two projects that this new division of Lockheed took on that really changed history. And both of them together became, for Lockheed at least, and the parent company, by far the biggest driver of profits for the coming decades. And really, as we'll see this division, you know, not Skunkworks. this division kept Lockheed alive. Lockheed would have absolutely died without this division. So what were these projects? One went up to space, as perhaps is obvious and we've foreshadowed and literally is in the name of the company, the Lockheed Missiles and Space Corporation. And the other one went down under the oceans. So let's talk about that one first, because I think it happened first chronologically. So submarines had obviously been a thing since World War II and even before that, back to World War I. There's lots of advantages to submarines during wartime. They're stealthy. They can basically travel anywhere in the world. You can stay hidden for long periods of time, especially once nuclear submarines are developed that can stay underwater for months at a time, self-powered. They're both a great offensive and a great defensive weapon during periods of active war. But during the Cold War, they're kind of useless. Because if you wanted to have a chess piece in position to strike a land-based target, if you could even do that at all with a submarine, you've got to get the submarine pretty dang close to the land, which means close to Russia, which means they know you're there, and that's a provocation. Hmm. Unless somebody could maybe somehow figure out a way to fire an intercontinental ballistic missile out of a submarine and go up into, you know, the air and into space and then hit a land-based target far, far away. Now, this seems crazy. It's hard enough to make this happen from the ground. You're talking about doing this from the sea with all the, like, waves and the lack of stability. No way this could happen.
0: This thing has to thrust through air after it thrusts through water.
1: Oh, well, you're making the leap already that you would fire it underwater. At first... When the Navy contracts Lockheed to work on this in 1955 to build the Navy's fleet ballistic missile system, its FBM, the idea is they're going to fire these things from the surface of the ocean. The submarine's going to rise up. They're going to like stabilize it in water and then they're going to fire off a missile from the deck of a ship or a surface submarine. The reason that it was worth trying was that if you could create a naval-based intercontinental nuclear strike capability, it completely changes the strategic landscape of deterrence and first strike versus second strike and retaliation. So what we were really afraid of, we thought the Soviets would pursue a first strike policy if they felt they were able to. The way that they would do that is if they felt that they could, in that first strike, knock out all of our nuclear capabilities. If they could target all of our land-based ICBMs, incapacitate them, then we would be incapable of responding with a second strike, and then they could blow up our cities and whatnot. Now, if all of a sudden you have a mobile naval-based missile system, well, that completely changes the chessboard. It's quite the deterrent. Quite the deterrent. You can now pretty much guarantee as long as you can keep a fleet of nuclear submarines operating at all times, that you can't take them out. And they can move around and be anywhere. And so if you launch a strike, they're going to launch right back. And first strike is now off the table. This is a huge strategic win if you could put this actually operationally in practice. The other medium, if you will, location that could change the dimension too for doing this would of course be space. If you had nuclear missiles up in space, that also changes the dimension. And this, among many, many reasons, is why when the Soviet Union launches Sputnik into space in October 1957, even though Sputnik itself was far from having nuclear ICBM capabilities, the Soviets getting to space first was truly terrifying.
0: I can't imagine how disconcerting it is in an era that you know, now there are tens of thousands of satellites orbiting the Earth all the time. When that was a brand new thing, when you could look up at night, if you could see Sputnik, and you're like, oh my God, that thing any day now could have a nuke aimed at us. Right. Okay, so back to the sea. It turned
1: out, like we were talking about a minute ago, that firing ICBMs from the deck of a surfaced ship, be it a submarine or otherwise, bad idea. Basically impossible. But firing missiles from under the ocean was doable. And Lockheed did it, with the help of Silicon Valley. So in December 1955, the Navy awards this contract to Lockheed. The name of the project was Polaris. People might have heard of Polaris missiles. Just over four years later, after the contract is awarded in 1960, the very first U.S. nuclear ballistic missile-equipped submarine sets sail on its patrol, and everything we just talked about is operationalized, equipped with Lockheed Polaris A1 undersea fired nuclear warheads, ballistic missiles, could reach land-based targets up to 1,200 nautical miles away from wherever the submarine was when it launched it.
0: And it was all built out of Silicon Valley. With many subcontractors all over the place. Right. I'm assuming Lockheed doesn't actually make the nuclear warheads, right? Like, that was still happening in national labs at Sandia and all the places that were pioneered during World War II.
1: Yeah. Lockheed did not make the submarines, nor did they make the
0: nuclear warheads. They made the Polaris missile system. Is it right that the federal government actually was the ones in their labs producing the nuclear weapons themselves?
1: I think a lot of this work was done out of Sandia, which we talked about on the Amazon episode. Oh, yeah. Bezos's dad worked there, right? Uh, grandfather. Bezos's grandfather was the head of Sandia, which was in New Mexico, the military nuclear program, the division of the U.S. overall nuclear program, I was out of los Alamos, but sandia was the military arm of
0: it Mm. which weirdly lockheed for many years actually had a contract to manage sandia because there's some sort of strange partnership that happens where the federal government hires government contractors to manage national labs
1: yep it all comes full circle yeah to enable this strategic chess piece the key thing is the missiles nuclear submarines already existed nuclear warheads already existed The challenge here was create a system by which you could launch a missile from under the ocean out of a submarine.
0: Man, I just got to say, it is so fortunate and insane to me that neither side ever launched. All the deterrence, for all the scary things that could have come out of it and all the itchy trigger fingers and everybody getting close, it never happened. That is a big applause to humanity that we could have done this and no one did.
1: Well, this is one of the things that I mentioned at the top of the episode. Doing this research sort of changed my mind on the war machine aspect of Lockheed and the military and the military-industrial complex. I think people really believed, and I think there's a good chance this was reality, it was building all of these systems and advancing all of this capability that prevented it from being used. If we hadn't built this stuff, there's a good chance Russia would have done a first strike.
0: Yeah, it's crazy. Okay, so Lockheed after 4 years successfully does the underwater ICBM launch. Yes. And then that
1: quickly leads to more successor programs and developing the technology further. The Polaris becomes the Poseidon is the next program and then the Trident. And the Trident, I can't remember how long, but it wasn't that long a gap between the first Polaris program and then the Trident. The Trident missiles had a 5,000-mile range and carry a hugely destructive nuclear payload. Unbelievable.
0: Terrifying. Well, I want to go back to space because I think you foreshadowed this a few times, but we haven't talked about this very secret program that only in 1995 got declassified that was also happening in Silicon Valley at Lockheed. Here we go. All right. So we just told this incredible story
1: about LMSC taking Silicon Valley under the ocean. This program, you know, Polaris, Poseidon, Trident, for most people listening, especially if you're American, these names aren't surprising to you. You've heard of these programs. You are aware that the U.S., starting in the 1960s, had nuclear submarines carrying intercontinental ballistic missiles. Yep. It was, if you think back to the kind of the chess game, it was in the government's best interest for the Soviets to know that we had these. The point was deterrence.
0: In fact, we probably should've bragged about this even if it wasn't real. Right, maybe it wasn't, who knows? We should've had inflatable subs floating around that we thought were uh, nuclear. Maybe it's all the cover, maybe all the
1: money that went into Silicon Valley, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
0: uh,
1: No, I don't think that was the case. Either way,
0: you don't wanna find out. Speaking of cover, do you know about the things we did on top of the factories when we were building airplanes? Oh, yes, and Disney was involved. Yeah, starting way back in World War II, but I think continuing after that, in the Burbank facilities at Lockheed, I know Boeing in the Seattle area and and other places too, built basically these burlap cities on top of factories that looked like suburbs, complete with 3D cars and trees and stuff so that anybody who was creating a spy plane and flying overhead would mistake our manufacturing facilities for something innocuous.
1: Yeah, I think it was spy planes and also during World War II Bombers. If bombers uh, ever made it to the West Coast, that they wouldn't know where to bomb. I'm pretty sure that Disney Imagineering was involved in creating these sets like they made for Disneyland.
0: It's crazy how sometimes it's in our best interest to make the adversary aware of our capabilities, and sometimes we want to disguise capabilities. It's really interesting. Super interesting. Okay, so if you remember back
1: when we pressed pause on the skunk work story and moved up the state of California, up the coast to Silicon Valley, we'd said that when Gary Powers and the U-2 was shot down in May 1960, that supposedly this was the end of U.S. observational capabilities in the Soviet Union, and that it was for about three months, (laughs) but nobody knew it. Well, LMSC is the reason that we got
0: our eyes back in the sky. And you might know that eventually after the U-2, Skunk Works would create the next great spy plane, the SR-71, which we will get to. But that wasn't for a little while. So this intelligence gap was filled by this secret, not very well-known project. I think a lot
1: of people in the military who did know about this stuff, this is heretical to say because it's so beloved, but I think the Blackbird was a decoy we were getting everything we needed from space.
0: Hmm. Uh, we just didn't
1: want anybody to know about it. And so everybody's now is like, oh, the Blackbird, it's such a shame. The government shut it down. You know, it was never used to its potential. It kind of never needed to be because of LMSC in space.
0: Whoa. All right, I'm listening. Okay. You got a lot of hairs on my arms yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: I know. I'm getting mad over here. People are probably getting very mad. Here we go. So when you think about America in space... In the U.S. space program, you think, of course, about NASA, Gemini and Apollo, Mercury, Kennedy, putting a man on the moon, all that amazing stuff, which for sure happened uh, and was happening. All of that was basic science research. Nobody working on those programs, public observing it, like, it would be crazy to think there were going to be actual applications in space, Anytime soon. There's no infrastructure. Like these are science missions. This is research. And even, you know, Sputnik on the Russian side, Sputnik was a research festival. It was like the size of, I don't know, like a bowling ball or something. I think it was a little bigger, but like it was very, very simple. It was a long, 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 long time before you went from those initial science missions to applications in space. Or so everybody thought. <laughs> because in parallel, there was a secret U.S. space program being run by Lockheed Missiles and Space Corporation out of Silicon Valley. And in basically the same timeframe as the initial NASA missions, the initial Mercury, I think, were the first
0: missions? Mercury, Gemini, Apollo, yep.
1: Yeah, basically concurrently with that, they got a fully operational observational spy satellite system up into space and functioning at the same time.
0: How did we launch them with nobody
1: lay it out? There was a cover story for what these things were. I think it was called the Discoverer Program. I believe the cover story was that this was like life form research in space, like they were sending animals up to space, like monkeys, to prepare for manned space flight. That was the cover story. They may have sent some monkeys up there, but that was not the point. Huh. The point was to get these reconnaissance satellites up to space. So the first program was called Corona. And you should Google about it and read. There's a great declassification document story that the government put out in 1985 when they declassified this stuff. And the Wikipedia page is pretty good.
0: Yeah, I downloaded it and I have it open my computer. It's pretty crazy. It says secret. It has the classification on it and then it's struck through. Yeah. It's literally the document that was prepared in secret and then declassified.
1: I think what the CIA and the National Reconnaissance Office does, I think they write these stories maybe quasi in real time so that there's documentation of all this stuff and then they stamp it secret and then it never gets
0: out until it gets declassified. Wow. Just amazing. But on the declassification website, which we'll link to in sources, You can see a bunch of the pictures that the Corona satellite took, including of the Pentagon. So you can see like something, you know what it looks like, and you can see the level of fidelity that this 1959 satellite got of that.
1: Oh, let's get into it. Okay, so the name Corona, there are conflicting stories of whether it comes from the Corona typewriter or the Corona type of cigar that apparently the uh, Pentagon official that championed this program really liked. We'll never know. It's all classified. So these satellites, like we've been alluding to, had cameras on them. The first one went up in August 1960. It was built in the years leading up to that by LMSC and then went up in August 1960. While everything else happening in space was, you know, research vessels, this first corona satellite had a camera system on it that was able to photograph any ground location that it passed over in its orbit around the Earth at a resolution as low as five feet from space. These were film systems. Now, the U2 camera system did have a higher resolution than that, higher ground resolution, but five feet was still plenty good. And more importantly, the Corona system could take photos anywhere in the world on its orbit. And if you had multiple of these satellites up there, you know, you could pretty much blanket the Earth or at least everywhere you cared about pretty quickly at basically any point in time. You know, they're spinning around the Earth. Like, yes, you can't do it in real, real time, but like it doesn't take that long for the thing to fly around the Earth and then fly around again. Right. The very first Corona mission, that very first satellite that went up in August 1960, produced greater photo coverage of the Soviet Union than All of the previous U-2 flights combined. Five years of operating the U-2 program, one satellite in one kind of month-long mission, I think it was about a month before it decayed, the orbit decayed, got more than all of that. Wow. No need to fly a plane. No need to worry about getting caught. No need to worry about the Soviets knowing what was going on. No need to worry
0: about being shot down. Unbelievable. There's a crazy stat. Over 800,000 images would be taken by these satellites over the course of the program. They got an enormous amount of coverage.
1: Now, just like you said a minute ago, you're talking about um, pixel resolution. You might be thinking as you're listening, you know, oh, I know how satellites and satellite imagery works today. You know, you got Google Maps, you got Starlink, you know, blah, blah, blah. Starlink's communication, but like communication. Yeah. How did they beam... These images <laughs> down from the ground. State. These were not digital photography. This was film freaking photograph. So, you got to get the film down from space is my point, which
0: they literally did. And how did they do it? They dropped it. Okay, so this is the craziest thing. They dropped from space a canister with film in it. Mind you, they can't mess up and expose the film and ruin it. This is very delicate film. They drop it in a canister from orbit, it enters the atmosphere and during all the heat and everything. It's not like you just shove it out of the satellite. <laughs> they had retro rockets built into the film
1: canisters to re-accelerate out of the orbit and move it down to go into the atmosphere.
0: Right, cuz if you just drop it out behind you then it stays in orbit. It needs to decelerate its rotational velocity so that it does move closer to the earth. Yes. It is in a custom designed canister called the film bucket that General Electric designed. It would separate and start falling to the earth after the incredible heat and violent action of moving through the atmosphere. The heat shield that surrounds the vehicle is jettisoned at around 60,000 feet. So again, where the highest airplanes can start to fly and parachutes would be deployed. So you've got this film canister. This is
1: my favorite part. This is so good.
0: Coming down with a parachute, the capsule is designed to be caught in midair by a passing airplane towing a claw. The claw grabs the parachute and they use a winch to bring the film capsule into the airplane. It's like those claw
1: games in the arcades, you know, like, oh, you pick up a... Literally, they had a freaking C-130
0: flying around with a big-ass claw to snatch this thing out of the sky. Unbelievable. You might say, what if the C-130, which, by the way, Lockheed airplane that still flies today, the C-130J, what if the airplane misses it? Seems like that's a pretty reasonable probability when this thing's falling from space and you're trying to catch it with a moving object. It can land at sea... And there's sort of a self-destruct mechanism where there's a salt plug in the base that dissolves after exactly two days, which if that happens, then the film sinks forever to the bottom of the sea. So if the Navy can't retrieve it within 48 hours, the salt sort of dissolves enough.
1: Because obviously, what would the biggest disaster be would be if somebody else or the Russians got their hands on this and were like, holy crap, somebody's taking photos from
0: space of us. Right? The whole thing is... Genius, crazy, and absolutely insane that it actually worked.
1: I believe it wasn't just one C-130. I think they had a whole fleet of C-130s all flying around where they thought this thing was going to reenter the atmosphere. You would need to. Because <laughs> how else are you...
0: I mean, when you have an, a satellite orbiting the Earth that fast at, I don't know what it is, Mach 20-something, it's pretty hard to predict exactly where your tiny film canister is going to come back and land. And all this happened in 1960. Oh, my God. So
1: all told, the Corona Satellite Program and LMSC also designed the Agena rocket, which was the kind of upper stage rocket booster that the Corona Satellite and other satellites, future satellites, attached to.
0: And I think they sort of pioneered the concept of a second stage. Like, we need a first stage to get us up, and then we need a second stage to get us to a very particular orbit that we care a lot about being in.
1: So that system of the Corona and the Agena, was the first spacecraft in history to do all of the following things. Achieve a circular orbit. Achieve a polar orbit. Be stabilized on all three axes in orbit. Because you kind of needed to be stabilized if you're going to take photos at five-foot resolution of the ground. Be controlled by a ground command. Return a man-made object from space. Propel itself from one orbit to another.
0: By the way, they returned 39,000 man-made objects from space. They took 2.1 million feet of film of photographs in 39,000 cans.
1: I mean, any one of those things that I just mentioned, if this weren't a top-secret black classified program for, what, three and a half decades, we'd be all over the history books. And as is, like, nobody knows about this stuff.
0: Yeah, it's the first, obviously, mapping of Earth from space. It's this first stereo optical data from space. It's the first reconnaissance program to fly a 100 missions at all, let alone one in space. I mean, this thing operated for 12 years.
1: Yeah, crazy. So corona
0: would then lead to three
1: follow-up programs that we know of. <laughs> I'm sure many, many more, but there are three follow-on ones that LMSC did that have been declassified so far some of these only very recently so the strategy of the program evolution over time was followed a the four stages that we know of first it was what they called see it uh, that was corona just period can we see the soviet union from space corona proved that the next phase was can we see it well and then the phase after that was can we see it all and then the mm. last phase, which is a lot of the last phase is still classified, is see it now. So let's talk about all of these. Corona, like we said, was just see it, get photos. But the photos were at a worse resolution than what the U-2 was able to achieve. In 1963, only three years after the first Corona satellite goes up, LMSC and the government launch the Gambit program. This is the see-it-well. So Gambit's max resolution still has not been declassified. We don't know how sharp it was. This thing launched in 1963, and it is still classified how good it was. But it has been confirmed that the resolution was under two feet, which was better than the U2 cameras. Whoa. Less than two feet from space in 1963. Next was Hexagon, Hexagon was the, quote, see-it-all program. Now, this is starting to eclipse a little bit my technical knowledge, and I think there's also just less known about this because a lot of this is still classified, too. I believe the Hexagon satellites had longer orbit lifespans and had more film capacity before they decayed, and so I think they were able to kind of, like, see more
0: longer, I think is what Hexagon was. You basically would need... Larger format film with a wider angle lens. If you don't want to increase your number of satellites, yeah, I'm fuzziest on Hexagon. Then, in 1977,
1: they launch Kennen, K E N N E N, which this is still like very classified. Some of it is out, so I can we can know a little bit about this. There actually was an incident in uh, I think it was 2019. When Trump was president, he tweeted a uh no. a, a intelligence photo that was just like this incredible photo of you know, incredible resolution of something had happened somewhere, maybe in Iran. And he tweeted, like, oh, see, like it isn't what you thought it was like. And people went nuts, people believe it's never been confirmed that this photo was from a future version of the Kenan program. Huh. So what was Kenan? Kenan was see it now. It's the first real-time space-based surveillance system. I guess maybe the first real-time surveillance system period. I don't know. By 1977, there were enough communication satellites up in the sky. And digital photography had come along far enough. The Canon satellites are like what we think about like Google Maps. Like It's real-time digital photography beamed down via a ground link to stations in real-time whoa and lockheed has to build their own digital workstations to like process these photos to display them to manipulate them like i think these might have been the first or like really early digital photo processing manipulation workstations that were sold to the cia i didn't know about any of this
0: yeah lockheed built all this in silicon valley wow By the way, you keep saying Google Maps. There's a fun piece of trivia that I'm curious if you know. Do you know, I think it was the code name, the original name for the Corona program. Oh, Keyhole. Yes. Yes. Which is
1: (laughs) one of the companies that Google acquired that became Google Maps.
0: Yep. Different Keyhole. Different Keyhole. But I'm pretty sure Keyhole Inc., which became Google Maps, was named after this Keyhole program.
1: Ooh. It very well could have been because it was 1995 when that was declassified, and I'm sure Keyhole was started after that. Yep. Just super cool. Along the way, LMSC also does a lot of pioneering work in weather satellites, and they launch weather satellites because it turns out that most of Russia is under cloud cover most of the time, so they got to <laughs>
0: know when you know the weather is going to be clear enough to look pretty awesome. Well, that's when you get into like all the synthetic aperture radar and all the other types of sensing that you have in satellites now that are not just the visible light spectrum in order to get visibility of stuff on the ground, no matter the conditions.
1: Yep. They're part of the positioning satellites that the military puts up and that goes on to be uh, opened up to uh, commercial use and that's the GPS system that we use today. Mm. And of course, I'm sure LMSC is part of... Many, many other things in space that uh, we still have no idea about. Wow. Yeah. One thing that we have a lot of idea about that they built that I had no idea till, um researching uh, all this. So, you know, we're now in the 70s as this is going along, and we'll come back and talk a little bit about this as we come back to Skunk Works here in a sec. But we're getting towards the end of the Cold War, and this stuff is less urgent. Lockheed and LMSC start moving into non-military applications or trying to, but LMSC gets a contract from NASA
0: and builds the Hubble telescope. Did you know that? I did know that. And Martin Marietta, future Martin and Lockheed Martin, built the large orange fuel tank for the space shuttle, which took the Hubble telescope to space. (laughs) Haha, that's so awesome. Different companies at the time. Now the same company. Yep. This is a great time to talk about our third favorite company of the episode, Pilot.com. And as you know, this season, we are joined by Wasim Daher, CEO of Pilot, for his tips he has for founders after starting three different companies.
1: Today, we're talking about a fun one, fake work. Don't get distracted
2: by it. Tell us about that. Sure. So I think there's a real temptation among early stage startup founders To do something that's basically like playing startup, meaning there are the things you really need to do, but there are the things you think like, oh, this is what a CEO does or this is what a business person should do. And so I guess I should spend time on that stuff, like going to networking events or giving talks, spending a bunch of time meeting VCs for coffee if you're not fundraising or being clever on Twitter or just spending hours researching what corporate card is the best. You really have one job as an early stage startup founder, which is to find product market fit or to talk to your customers, build something that they really love and that they're willing to pay you for. And anything that you do that is not that, in a way, really is fake work. It feels like work. It takes up your time, but it doesn't actually advance the mission of the company and is consequently really, really dangerous. Sometimes it's working on like priority 35. Like this is a real task. It's a task that needs to be done maybe I guess by someone just you should be focusing on priority number one or two like priority number 35 should be the thing that is below the line that you don't get to but you do it because like you're good at priority 35 or you happen to like that particular thing for me the very concrete example recently is I wrote some elaborate python script to sync data between our crm and a spreadsheet I was using to track revenue and it was just like no why that's an awful use of my time but like I like to program sometimes, and so I did it, and I justified it to myself. as like, oh, I'm working. I'm helping compute the revenue or whatever. It's like, no, no. You have to be laser-focused on the real work, not the fake work.
0: Our thanks to Pilot, the largest startup-focused accounting firm in America. You can click the link in the show notes or go to pilot.com slash acquired to get 20% off your finance, accounting, and tax prep needs for your first six months and, frankly, Everyone should do this. This is no one's core competency. Pilot has gotten extremely good at it. Humans, software, keeping up with all the latest trends and fintech platforms that you're probably using. Click the link in the show notes and give it a shot. I think they are fantastic humans, and we recommend it. Thank you, Pilot. It's funny
1: to be talking about Pilot as we're talking about aircraft. I know. Well, here now we're talking about pilotless aircraft, but which is what you <laughs> should be because you should use pilot. You should outsource all of your finance and account. To pilot. So great. Okay. Two other things that I wanna talk about with LMSC before we come back to the coda on Skunkworks and the Blackbird and all that. One, I think I alluded to this earlier. LMSC Listeners, you be the judge. The stories that we've just told, is this more impactful to America and the world than what Skunk Works was doing? Personally, I kind of think yes, but, you know, maybe you can debate. What is undebatable is that LMSC, from a business standpoint within Lockheed, became the crown jewel
0: of the company. Huh. Which isn't true anymore. Or at least it's not their largest business today.
1: Well... I think at times in the 60s and 70s and 80s, LMSC was the largest business by revenue. But almost through the whole time, it was by far the most profitable division within Lockheed. And at times, when we'll get into Lockheed fell on some really hard times in the 70s. There were years where LMSC generated more than 100% of the profits of no Lockheed. Way. So all of the rest of Lockheed, Skunk Works included, was in the red unprofitable, bleeding money, and LMSC was keeping the company afloat. Wow. And if you think about it, I guess, one, like just what they're developing and the scale of it and these contracts are huge, both under the ocean and up in space. Two, though, what they're doing, it's different than building airplanes. And I alluded to this when I was talking about it's a different talent set. This is much more technology problems and computing problems that LMSC is tackling here yes they're building missiles yes they're building rockets and all that but the core value components of those rockets is computing and silicon and ultimately software and as we talk about all the time on this show like well that's really
0: good margins definitely better margins than building airplanes hmm Well, interestingly enough, so I just pulled up all four of their divisions these days. They have four, aeronautics, which is basically their fighter jets. The second is missiles and fire control, which I think is where most of the LMSC stuff would live today. The third is rotary and mission systems. That's helicopters and some other stuff. And then there's space. I think all the space stuff today is a little bit different. I think that's more like the Orion capsule on the Artemis program that's going to the moon and stuff like that they all make 9 to 14% profit margins like a operating profit but the 14% is missiles and fire control and then the 9 and 10% is the rest of the divisions makes sense
1: interesting so the stats i have this is from beyond the horizons which also is where a lot of the story especially of corona came from during the 12 year period from 1960 when corona first launched to 1972 Lockheed as a whole did 26 billion in revenue over that 12 year period and just 255 million in total profit. Not a high margin company during that period. LMSC accounted for over a third of that revenue and 128% of the profit. So that's what I was talking about. Everything else in Lockheed lost money, or at least in aggregate, lost money. And then during the early post-Cold War period from 1983 to 1992, LMSC accounted for 46% of revenue, so growing
0: percentage of revenue, and 72% of profits during that 10-year period. Wow. It really is a completely different company today. And I want to save why as we drift toward today in analysis and all that, but that's crazy how big the LMSC business was at the time. It was a great business, just from a business standpoint. So the
1: other thing I want to talk about before we come back to Skunkworks is LMSC's operating principles and philosophy. And so much of that was built off the shoulders of Skunkworks. And a lot of the guys in the YouTube videos that I found talk about this. Their philosophy, though, they codified into seven tenets. So Kelly had his 14 rules, LMSC had seven tenets. And most of them are very similar to the Skunkworks rules. We'll link to a um an image of them in the show notes. One of them, though, that I want to highlight and discuss that to me stands out as different from Skunkworks is tenet number one. And that one is focus on a threat-based need. And I think that's really interesting. Huh? To me, when I read that and thought about it, that element is missing from Skunkworks and Kelly's philosophy. Oh, this is conjecture here. Like, there's no Skunkworks book about LMSC, so like, we have very little information to go on. But if that really was tenant number one for the company, I think you could maybe extrapolate that a little bit to the market context is really important for what you're doing, and don't lose sight of hmm. the market context for what you're building. Kelly's philosophy of all that matters is rapid delivery of superior products. Nowhere in that statement is there room for the market. Well, who decides huh. what's superior? Maybe a small number of people want this, but do a large number of people want this? Like, how important is this? Obviously, what Skunk Works was doing was really important.
0: Or so they thought. I mean, if they knew about this robust spy satellite system... Well, this is the argument. Maybe it wasn't that important. Maybe the Blackbird was a decoy. Okay, we have not talked about the SR-71. Can you please take us back to Skunk Works? I'm like dying for my Mach 3 airplanes and ribbon engines here.
1: Uh, Okay, let's do it. But keep that in mind, though. A threat-based need. Was there a threat-based need for the SR-71? Maybe. My computer wallpaper needs to exist, so that's a need. (laughs) Oh, there was a market need. Was there a threat-based need? Okay, so Skunk Works, the greatest airplane ever built.
0: And before the SR-71 itself, it's probably worth sharing like the U-2 was the thing that averted the crisis at the Cuban Missile Crisis. We got photos not over Russia anymore because we couldn't, but of Soviet activity elsewhere. And we got confirmation of, oh, my gosh, they are arming nuclear weapons less than a few hundred miles off the coast of Florida. So... We do need to respond to this and we can prove to them that we can observe it, which in these sort of we're at war, we're not at war periods of time can be enough to actually end an escalating crisis. So the U-2 time and time again over Russia, not over Russia, did its job.
1: You raise an important point there, too. Even if Corona had coverage over that stuff, it's not like we could show those photos to the right. So we still had to
0: have the U-2 and the SR-71. The U-2 was quite useful to say, here's a thing that you know exists that captured pictures of a thing that you don't want us to see. Right. But, gee, it sure would be nice if we had a plane that couldn't be shot down.
1: So, when Gary Powers is shot down in May 1960, of course, as you would expect, the CIA and Skunk Works is already hard at work at the successor airplane to the U-2. Everybody believes it's kind of a miracle that they were able to fly for five years like they did. They knew that this day was coming when the Russians would be able to shoot it down. So as we talked about, the U-2's primary defense as it so happened, wasn't intentional, but as it happened in practice, was how high it flew. It was obviously trackable on radar. 70,000 feet. Yep. Yep. It's not like you could evade enemy fighters or missiles in this thing. It had a 100-foot wingspan. It turned like a school bus. (laughs) It was how
0: high it flew. And then all of a sudden, that was no longer defensible. So it's not very fast, and it doesn't fly high enough to evade missiles. So kind of useless? Yeah. So if you remember back to the original spec for the program, there were
1: three sort of vectors that were possible for how you could operate a program like this. One was fly high enough. That's what the U2 ultimately did. There was also, though, fly so that it can't be seen by radar,
0: stealthy. We'll come back to that in a few minutes here. And then three, make it go so fast that even if they do fire at you, it just falls behind and then explodes miles behind your incredibly fast airplane. Yep. So uh that's the path they took. If you
1: can't evade them, outrun them. Yep. It's like the Sonic the Hedgehog of airplanes. So this program, if you know anything about the SR-71 Blackbird, you're like, well, that's an Air Force airplane. We're talking about the CIA here. The Blackbird was not a CIA airplane. The program that the Blackbird ultimately came out of was the A-12 Oxcart. This was essentially the same airplane. We'll talk about the differences in a minute. But this was the CIA contract that they had Skunk Works working on. And it was, yeah, the goal, make this thing so fast that whether they see it or not, they're
0: not going to shoot it out of the sky. It has an even better camera, I think also designed by Edwin Land, and it can get these incredible photos flying really, really fast.
1: Yep. And to be able to avoid surface-to-air missiles, that basically meant that the specs for this thing were that it had to go Mach 3 or faster. (laughs) Now, to outrun any, you know, missiles, it had to do that with a pilot. in it. There had to be humans in this thing. Faster than Mach 3 is faster than 2,000 miles an hour. If
0: you fire a rifle, that bullet doesn't go Mach 3. If you're standing on the ground and you pick up a rifle and you shoot it, and an SR-71 flies over your head, the SR-71 will beat the bullet.
1: Yeah, it goes about... Two-thirds of a mile every second.
0: This thing also is not very good at turning, as you would imagine. (laughs) So there's a fun stat about the SR-71. It cannot turn around in the state of Ohio. Its turn radius to change direction by 180 degrees is a wider turn than the state of Ohio. Oh, wow. Its decommissioning mission, just to show off how fast it ever went, was one hour and five minutes from LA to DC.
1: For being placed in the National Air and Space Museum.
0: Yep. Coast to coast in an hour.
1: Wow. And at this, I remember being a kid and looking at this thing, like, well, why didn't we commercial? Then, like, you can't commercialize this
0: thing. You got to be in a <laughs> spacesuit to fly this. Totally. It flies at 84,000 feet. Up looks black to you. Straight basically looks black to you. You can see the curvature of the earth. You can't navigate really by earth-based landmarks because the earth-based landmarks are moving by you too fast. So the best you can do is be like, the Rockies are in front of me. Oh, the Rockies are behind me. And that's not terribly useful. So they had to invent a new navigational guidance system that sits on the top of the plane, R2-D2 style, looking like an astromech from Star Wars, to navigate by the stars.
1: That's so great.
0: I mean, it is like 50 concurrent miracles that went into making this thing possible. And
1: hopefully this is obvious. But just to make the point again, you know, some of you might be sitting there being like, well, you just told me about how the sister company LMSC did all this amazing stuff in space. You go a lot faster than that to get to space and whatnot. And like, yeah, but you don't have humans on there. So a pilot's
0: got to fly this thing. And these aren't rocket engines. These are jet engines that they figured out how to make go Mach 3.
1: Yep. Okay. So when Skunk Works and Kelly and Ben Rich and everybody sit down to work on this, the current state-of-the-art fastest plane at the time, this is late 1950s when they start working on this, is the McDonnell Douglas F-4 Phantom, which is able to hit just over Mach 2 with its afterburners on. So not sustained flight. Like when you punch the afterburners, it can barely touch Mach 2. And the F-4 itself was only a bit faster than the Skunk Works built F-104 Starfighter that Ben, you mentioned earlier, which was the first Collier trophy that Kelly Johnson won. So the idea that you were going to achieve cruising speeds, like sustained speeds, (laughs) above Mach 3. This is a big piece to bite off here. Only a handful of planes have ever been able to do this since, and I'm pretty sure no other plane has been able to do this at cruise speed without engaging afterburners.
0: It is still to this day, unless there are classified programs we don't know about, the highest and fastest humans have ever flown without rocket propulsion. Yes. Okay, so how are you going to do this?
1: The only way you can do this in a jet-powered plane is to essentially design something that can run with afterburners on all the time. Like, they're not afterburners, they're just burners. <laughs> it's how <laughs> the thing goes. To do that, you A, required a tremendous amount of fuel, and B, you also produced heat in doing so that's like rocket-level proportions.
0: The skin of the airplane gets to 500 degrees Fahrenheit. The area near the engines on the airframe itself gets almost to a 1,000. Yes. And the engines, I think,
1: inside the engines get to close to 3,000 degrees, I believe. So they had to build the whole plane out of titanium to uh, make this work.
0: Which was a metal that no one had ever built a plane out of before.
1: Right. This is really funny. There wasn't enough titanium in the United States to build all these blackbirds or raw titanium that they could easily source. There
0: happened to be mines somewhere else with a bunch of titanium.
1: So the government and Lockheed set up a bunch of dummy corporations.
0: In Europe, like European incorporated dummy corporations.
1: Yes. And they source a large amount of the titanium that goes into the blackbirds, the A-12s and then the blackbirds out of the Soviet Union.
0: (laughs) 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 Too funny. And by the way, you can't machine titanium with regular tools. Right. Titanium is so hard that it will damage your tools. So they had to machine new tools for the Blackbird itself out of titanium in order to manufacture the titanium plane.
1: I feel like it's like a diamond cutting facility or something.
0: (laughs) Totally. And I think traditionally... Additional materials like aluminum would lose its strength around 300 degrees. So, like, you actually need a different material, otherwise, the whole plane would just dissolve when it got that fast. Amazing. So, (laughs) there's another funny thing here, which is metal expands when it gets hot. And normally, your airplane materials don't get that hot because you're not going that fast. So, it's fine if the metal expands a little bit. Except when it's getting this hot, the panels, the skin of the airplane, is going to expand quite a bit. So that means if they expand a lot, you have to leave a lot of room. So how do you leave room? So what they want it to do is fit together really snug while the plane is flying, which means the panels have to fit together kind of loose when the plane's not flying.
1: Ben, are you telling me that the
0: Blackbird had panel gaps? The Blackbird had panel gaps And to add insult to injury, there are a variety of reasons they decided not to have custom fuel tanks. They literally just made the skin of the aircraft the fuel tank itself, so you didn't need sort of multiple—you needed it to be light. And you needed a lot of fuel in there. Right. And so when it was on the ground after you fuel it up, because there's gaps in the fuel tank, it would just leak fuel while it was sitting on the ground. So to solve this problem, they went to Shell and had a custom fuel created for it that was not flammable. On the ground, like you could smoke a cigarette next to it and it wouldn't burst into flames because after you fuel this thing before it took off, it's just going to leak fuel all over the tarmac.
1: Oh, my God. This is one of the reasons why um it is maybe spoiling it a little bit, but to flash forward, the Air Force hated operating these things. Yeah. I mean, it cost, I think, $300 million a year just to maintain these things. These were beasts from hell in every sense of that phrase. <laughs> the good and the bad. Yep. Okay, so that's some of the materials challenges. Another problem was on the engines. So the most advanced jet engines in the world at the time was the Pratt & Whitney J-58. And I believe actually they weren't even able to get the
0: J-58 in the first A-12s and then only later in the Blackbird's. Did they put it in? And we should tell people the Blackbird, the SR-71, was the two-seater Air Force version of the single-seater A-12 CIA airplane. Yep. So
1: even the J-58s couldn't produce nearly enough thrust on their own to get to and sustain the Mach 3-plus speeds that they needed to hit spec. In fact, at least according to Ben Rich in Skunkworks, they could only produce about 25% of the thrust required. So Ben leads a team that engineers the spike inlet system. So if you're looking at a Blackbird and you look at the engines, they've got these, like, cones in front, these spikes, these big spikes. I mean, I'm sure everybody listening has seen a photo of a
0: Blackbird, but, like, pull it up right now. If you live in Seattle, go to the Museum of Flight. There's a handful of these at various museums around the country. You owe it to yourself if you have not seen one of these things in person.
1: Uh, It's just one of the most amazing objects ever created, ever. But these cones, what do they do? So the engines get the thing up, and then once it's up in the air, the cones expand and retract. First suck in, and then compress, and then superheat massive amounts of air that they then mix with fuel in the engines and ignite. Essentially, this is the world's most badass supercharger ever created. (laughs) These things are superchargers. That's what they are. The spike system is a supercharger for the engines. It provides three quarters of the thrust needed to get to Mach 3 Plus and sustain it. Unbelievable.
0: Obviously, Dave and I are fanboying this thing. It's really easy to feel good about this airplane because it also never carried guns. It only carried cameras. You couldn't shoot bullets out of it because uh, it's faster than the bullets. (laughs) Right. But they (laughs) did consider... I think Kelly and the Skunkworks team were really advocating to build a tactical aircraft that was based on this, or a bomber, and that never happened. So every version of the SR-71 or the early prototypes of the Archangel or the CIA spy plane—they're only ever badass airplanes that carry cameras and go really fast. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So fortunately, you know, Skunkworks and the CIA
1: had started working on the A-12 Oxcart before Gary Powers was shut down. It takes, I believe, quite a while to engineer this beast. They start test flying it in April 1962. Of course, at Area 51, where else are they going to do this? Once they start test flying it, that's when the Air Force finally gets interested in the project and is like, oh, we want our version of this. And that's how the Blackbird comes about. A fun little bit of trivia. Within the Air Force and the Pentagon, the project originally was called the RS 71.
0: Yes. Not the SR. SR. And the SR-71 is strategic reconnaissance, but it ended up being backwards. Yeah, so funny. It happened because
1: President Lyndon Johnson actually announced the existence of this thing in a national speech. And uh, during the speech, he calls it the SR-71 instead of the RS. Now, this is total trivia. Nobody really knows. There's some speculation that it wasn't that he messed up and made a mistake, but that his speechwriter wanted it to be called the SR-71 and <laughs> intentionally modified the speech. Who knows? What is relevant, though, politics become a huge thing here. So once Johnson says this, now the plane is the SR-71, not the RS-71. Nobody is willing to contradict the president. So Skunk has to go and, like, redo all of their documentation for the whole damn thing to SR-71 And it all said RS-71 before just because nobody wanted to contradict the president. You can imagine Kelly Johnson's reaction to this. Yeah. So the first official flight of the Blackbird happens on December 22nd, 1964. It reaches a top speed of Mach 3.4. God. The airplane wins Kelly his second Collier trophy. I mean, still, to this day, people lose their minds over this thing. and
0: It's stunning. It flies over 84,000 feet. It, I believe, has never been shot down. There were some accidents in test piloting, but yeah, it's never been hit by an enemy. I think it took four years to ever even be detected by radar for the first time, all the way until 1968. It has played roles in surveillance in Vietnam, Korea, Arab-Israel conflict in the 70s, obviously the USSR.
1: There's stuff you can find out there on the internet. Obviously, nobody really knows, but supposedly, according to internet lore over 4,000 missiles have been shot at Blackbirds (laughs) and none of them have ever hit.
0: It is just such an awesome, badass thing to say the way that we're going to get around getting shot down is just to be faster than the missiles and be right about that. It's especially
1: awesome when you know, as you know, the highest levels of the government, it's kind of
0: all a decoy anyway. (laughs) You're getting what you need from other sources. Man. So this is a good time to talk about that. You keep saying that I had no idea until you brought that up, what, an hour ago. I think you're right. Yeah. Well, here's one area where I'm
1: wrong. I do think that statement is mostly right. But you could argue with it, and people do and did, in that satellites are not real time. You know when they're coming. You know when they're about to fly over. If you need to instantly get somewhere that maybe you don't have the right orbit coverage for or where there's a dynamic situation... If an enemy knows that a satellite is flying over it and doing reconnaissance, they know when the satellite is going to fly over so they could hide stuff during those times. Mm -hmm. If you need full flexibility, you need a Blackbird. So it does have a use. It's not like it's useless. But unlike the U-2,
0: which was everything, it's more of a niche use case here. So the Blackbird doesn't fly today. Civilians are unaware of something that has flown faster. There's a crazy stat, a little bit of trivia about the SR-71, and this really puts into context how early this was and how strange it is that we've had nothing faster since. The SR-71 first flight was closer to the Wright brothers than today. Yeah, wild, right? it's totally wild. And I mean, this whole thing was built with slide rules. I had a very controversial tweet get a community noted where I said that it was before the invention of the desktop calculator. It's like mostly true. There's technicalities to it. But, you know, Kelly and team basically did this thing independently of computers and calculators and figured out all the unbelievable aerodynamism stuff about it. Of course, there's also it's the first stealth airplane. I mean, that's the other thing that we didn't talk about is the reason this thing wasn't detected on radar for four years because they figured out how to fly and start to evade radar.
1: Yep. Now, I don't know the details of stealth
0: with the Blackbird.
1: I imagine a big part of that was the height was the altitude and the speed of it.
0: It's not that, I don't think. It's more around the shape. Because radar will just go unimpeded, you know, out into space. There's uh, famous stories about detecting where people's radar transmitters are by bouncing them off the moon and figuring out the patterns of bouncing off the moon. It's more, I think, that the SR-71's bottom was one of the first airplanes with a flat bottom rather than a rounded fuselage. And so imagine I'm shooting a set of waves at a round sphere in front of me. Well, some of those waves are going to bounce back because some of that sphere is exactly perpendicular to me broadcasting it. There's one particular point that's exactly perpendicular, and I can kind of tell the radius of the thing by how I'm detecting waves that are bouncing back at me. But if it's all flat, there's only one very specific angle for which I can shoot waves at it where I'm perfectly perpendicular, and every other angle that I shoot radar at it, it's going to bounce off and not come back to me as a transmitter. You'd need transmitters Mm. coding all over the earth to figure out where all those waves are bouncing. And so by making the bottom flat, they made it so that if it was truly flat, then there's only one exact moment in time that a given radar transmitter is useful. Ah, that's cool. They also did a whole bunch of work around making the rivets exactly flush with the skin. So it basically didn't have a whole bunch of rounded parts that could risk bouncing radar waves back at the transmitter receiver.
1: Super cool. Keep in mind for a minute from now... That idea of flat surfaces and planes and radar. Uh planes, not airplanes, planes like a flat plane and uh surfaces. Okay. To close out on this amazing airplane, amazing and sad in a lot of ways. It's hugely expensive to build these things. Thirty-three million dollars per plane, which was a lot back then. I mean planes now cost more, but a lot. And then, as I said, $300 million a year just to keep them operational and run the program. You couldn't use it as a fighter or a bomber. It was only reconnaissance. It's not super popular with the military and the Air Force. They kind of don't like it as an operational plane.
0: Right. It's a lusty airplane.
1: Yes. It's not a daily driver. Let's put it that way. In 1970, the Pentagon cancels further orders, and they order Skunkworks to destroy all of the titanium tooling for it so that no more can ever be built. I assume that's so that it doesn't fall into enemy hands or something like that.
0: And it's like, we're serious about telling you we're done ordering these things, and we don't want political maneuvering to spin it back up, so we're going to be prohibitively expensive for you or for anyone to ever think about starting the program back up.
1: Yep. The existing ones do stay in service, but obviously this is like a big blow to... Skunk Works revenue. Uh, They're not producing these things anymore. On the back of that, Skunk Works has to do layoffs, the Skunk Works division, after the contract is canceled in 1972. Two years later, Lockheed and Skunk Works lose the bidding for the F-16 fighter. General Dynamics wins that. Ironically, the later Lockheed, right before the merger with Lockheed Martin,
0: would acquire General Dynamics fighter plane (laughs) business. So it does come back into Lockheed. And it is still, they call it out in their earnings like today. They're still selling F-16s today.
1: So here's what's interesting about this contract and Lockheed and Skunk Works losing it. This is an example, I think, of to that first tenant from LMSC of threat-based need and real, you know, need, market need. Maybe you want to adapt that to Kelly Johnson, as amazing and a genius as he is, is a very stubborn man. And the stated purpose the air force's goals with the f-16 was to have a cheap fighter it didn't need the best it needed to be cheap and that they could make a lot of these and they could use them all over the world that's not kelly's mo and so he and skunkworks bidding on this project they kept trying to give the air force what they didn't want and they
0: lost it like the idea of skunkworks losing a contract this is crazy and in particular He didn't really want to play ball the way the government was trying to bid out the contract. He looked at the requirements. He said, this is stupid. I'm going to design you an airplane that I think meets the needs of how this will be used in the field rather than what these technical specifications say here. And over the long run, he was right. As the program evolved, the specs actually changed to what Kelly decided to build their prototype airplane to do. But the prototype they produced was not in spec for the original F-16 requirements.
1: And by this point in time, to bring some context back of where the country was, you know, we're now basically post-Vietnam War. The Cold War is for sure still going on, but it's not the same level of urgency in Americans' minds as it was back in the 50s.
0: Not to mention, all military muscle is very unpopular in America, and so any politicians who are seeking to sort of expand the might and budget and proactivity of the military are facing a lot of resistance at home. And that's great. That That is probably a good thing for our society that that was happening. And at the same time, it made Kelly kind of a relic.
1: Yeah, totally. And this is not a challenge that LMSC, at least with the Corona Project, had to face because nobody knew about it. Right. So... This is a really bad time for Lockheed. This is the period, like we were talking about at the end of the LMSC chapter, where it's LMSC that keeps the company afloat. Kelly retires. Kelly retires. Ben Rich takes over as head of Skunk Works. Skunk Works is doing layoffs. Lockheed really stupidly decides to try to get back into the commercial aviation business. L1011. They make the L1011, which by all accounts was a great airplane but turns into a disaster project they're trying to compete with Boeing and with McDonnell Douglas here the DC-10
0: I think was the McDonnell Douglas competitor
1: Lockheed partners with Rolls-Royce to make the engines right as Rolls-Royce goes bankrupt and gets nationalized by the UK government all told we won't go into the whole history here but the L-1011 airliner project loses Lockheed two and a half billion dollars and as we said a few minutes ago This is not a super profitable company. They don't have $2.5 billion in other earnings just sitting around to soak up the losses here. Yeah. At the same time, Lockheed also gets caught up in really nasty bribery scandals around the world. But these are nasty political scandals themselves. And basically, Lockheed comes out looking, at least to the American public, like kind of a corrupt arms dealer. So what happens is, you know, Lockheed and lots of people would argue that this is just the way you needed to do business in foreign countries, our allies that Lockheed sold these weapons to. In the Netherlands, in Japan, and in Saudi Arabia, it comes to light that Lockheed employees and contractors are paying bribes to political officials to win Mm -hmm. contracts. This actually brings down the Japanese prime minister at the time. Whoa. This is a huge scandal in Japan, on the order of like Watergate in the US. Huge scandal. Sega actually makes an arcade game about it called I'm Sorry <laughs> about the prime minister at the time. Like, so funny. Lockheed also, on the military side, kind of the main Lockheed divisions engage with a couple helicopter projects with the military and then the C5 Galaxy transport plane those projects go horribly. They have huge cost overruns. The C-5, at least, I think does ultimately become a good airplane, but costs way more than the initial bidding. All of this conspires that, especially post-Vietnam period, the American public starts to view Lockheed as this corrupt vampire octopus military industrial complex squid sucking on America. Things get real bad. Lockheed's finances at the same time are so bad, they need a bailout from the government. So the government has to guarantee a $250 million loan to Lockheed to keep them afloat, mostly because of the L-1011 disaster. It requires a vote of Congress to do this. It almost doesn't pass. This is real bad.
0: Hmm. I didn't realize how dark it got there.
1: It got real, real dark. And again, it was only the profits from LMSC that kept the company from probably going under. Hmm. So, okay, we've mentioned stealth a few times
0: here. Back to Skunkworks. There is one more great Skunkworks airplane, and it is under the administration of Ben Rich, Kelly's successor.
1: One last hurrah, at least for the traditional Skunkworks organization.
0: So, there's a math paper published in a Russian journal around
1: mid 1970s, right around this time,
0: which I think gets published because the Russians don't really see anything of value in there. They don't really know exactly what these particular equations that are getting published could be applied toward. But somebody at the Skunk Works reads the paper and says, huh, I think all the ways that we've been thinking about trying to make an airplane stealth like the SR-71 with – Flattening the bottom a little bit and trying to use particular materials and paint and stuff like that. I think it's good. But if I apply these equations to make a stealth aircraft, then I think we can do something two orders of magnitude better than anything we've done before. And I think we can make an airplane go from looking smaller than it is, like a bird on a radar, to something like a BB on a
1: radar. Or a ball bearing, famously. Or a ball bearing. So that Skunkworks employee was then 36-year-old Dennis Overhalzer, who uh, was a mathematician. And he, like you said, reads this paper and brings it to Ben Rich, who just six months earlier had taken over from Kelly as head of Skunk Works.
0: And he's told, don't stick your neck out. No one's getting the crazy amount of rope that Kelly had. So prepare to just be Lockheed's yes man and we're gonna use the skunk works for branding and marketing, but we're not doing anything too nutty in your little shop over there.
1: And even Kelly himself, he's retired, but he stays on as an advisor, so he still has his fingers and everything. He's so disillusioned at this point. He tells Ben Rich, he says, Don't even pursue this. It's not worth it. Missiles are where the future is. Nobody's making planes anymore. Don't invest the money
0: on this. And in particular, because when you apply these equations to design an aircraft, the way you have to design it makes it incredibly not aerodynamic. If it works, it will be a thing that is invisible on radar. But Kelly sort of looks at some of the early sketches of what you would have to do to make this thing into an airplane and basically thinks that's not an airplane that won't generate lift.
1: He's such an aesthetic snob. He's like, that's not an airplane. We can't make it. It doesn't look beautiful.
0: And it's not just that it doesn't look beautiful. It's that literally there's like only a hint of Bernoulli in there. The way that it's shaped is unclear that it will generate enough lift to lift itself.
1: Yes. Also correct. Or, well, I think the bigger problem was less about lift, although I'm sure that was a problem, but more about could you control it? Yeah. Could you fly this
0: thing? So what's being proposed here is basically an enormous-looking cockpit, this big globular fuselage, and you can Google the F-117A. The name is the Nighthawk. Stubby wings, these two little super-thin, tall tail fins. It looks super unstable, and the whole thing has basically zero round surfaces on it. It's faceted. I mean, it looks like a diamond. In fact its code name, or I would say probably not its code name, but its nickname internally was the Hopeless Diamond.
1: Yes. You know what this thing looks like if you aren't already intimately familiar with images of it? I actually think it looks really cool.
0: Totally. But it doesn't look like it'll fly or fly in a controllable way. It looks like you made an airplane, like a paper airplane, and then you put a, a rock on top of it and you were like trying to get that thing to fly. Totally.
1: To me, it looks like the planes in the first Star Fox game for the Super Nintendo, (laughs) when Nintendo and other 16-bit game developers during that generation were trying to make 3D games with 16-bit hardware, and you didn't have enough processing power and polygonal power to make rounded shapes, so you had to have flat surfaces.
0: These big-ass triangles.
1: Big-ass triangles. That's what this thing looks like. It literally looks like a, not a Star Fox 64, a Star Fox Super Nintendo (laughs) plane.
0: Right. So Ben Rich decides that he wants to put his career on the line.
1: Yeah, and take a risk and make this. So he goes to the Air Force. The Air Force says, well, you know, on the one hand, your timing is good. We actually also think stealth technology is worth pursuing. We have an active RFP out there. We didn't come to you guys because... Skunkworks hasn't made a fighter plane in God knows how long. You guys just had layoffs. We don't like the Blackbird. Sorry, you guys are old news. And Ben Rich, like you said, he risked his career six months into the job pursuing it at all. He risks it even further. He goes back to Lockheed Corporate and says, I want to pursue this and make a prototype anyway without a research contract. We're going to fund this
0: internally. Which this is not something that defense contractors do. No. (laughs) We'll talk about this as we get into playbook, but it's not like a tech company where you do a bunch of forward-looking R&D and then amortize it over a bunch of customers later. You go bid on a contract, you get that contract, and then you build the thing.
1: It's so funny, you know, reading less so in the early history, but when you read about Lockheed today and the industry today, there's all this talk of the customer The customer, there's only one customer. The DOD. The DOD is the customer. You know, it's like the Amazon, like, oh, the empty seat for the customer
0: in the room. It's not a metaphorical customer. It is a specific customer. No, it's like, what does the Pentagon think? Which is a good and a bad. They're unbelievably customer focused. Lockheed Martin doesn't build stuff unless the U.S. government says, I'll order it, which means they don't have to take a lot of risk. But on the other hand, they also don't get the upside from taking risk typically.
1: And this is how crazy this situation is. It is literally the opposite of what you just said. This is Ben Rich's neck on the line. This is Skunkworks on the line. This is everything. So they go and they build a prototype. It's nicknamed the Hopeless Diamond. The code name is Have Blue, H-A-V-E-B-L-U-E. And I mentioned ball bearings earlier. They make a model of this thing, a wooden model. They put it up on a pole. They test it in a radar range alongside the other prototypes from other Contractors for a stealth fighter that the Pentagon has put out. And this thing is invisible. The way that the Air Force inspectors come up with testing it is they get a set of ball bearings of increasingly smaller diameters and they attach them to the nose cone of the wooden model at the radar range. And they see if you can detect the ball bearing or if it's blacked out by like this massive plane model behind it. And they can detect a ball bearing down to a diameter of an eighth of an inch. So the radar signature of this plane is less than an eighth of an inch sphere.
0: It's unbelievable. The thing is all flat surfaces. So it basically bounces the radar everywhere except for the transmitter receiver that is actually shooting the radar waves at it. So will it fly and can you control it are still open questions, but we now know that it is like, oh, my God, radar invisible.
1: Yeah. So out of that... The dark horse, Skunkworks, wins the contract to build the Air Force's stealth fighter. They do. They solve the challenges you just mentioned, and they solve them with computers. For the first time, or at least that we know of, really, the first time in Skunkworks history, the way you control this thing is with fly-by-wire, which I'd heard that term before, but fly-by-wire means... That the plane's systems are controlled by a computer, and when you move the controls as a pilot, you are not directly moving the mechanics. The computer decides how to translate your intentions into stabilized movements for the
0: plane. Power steering. Exactly. Well,
1: yeah, it's even more than it's like doing all sorts of stuff that you have no idea. Right. Right. To make it do what you want to do.
0: Right. I mean, it's a Tesla, basically. It's abstracting away your inputs and doing the thing that is optimal based on what it's pretty sure your inputs want it to do.
1: Yeah. So
0: they win the contract. They start
1: testing this thing at, of course, Area 51. And the stealth fighter really
0: looks like an alien spaceship. So (laughs) (laughs) I don't blame all these people with the binoculars who are pretty sure there's aliens. I don't blame them either. The Air Force starts taking delivery
1: in 1983 of the stealth fighter from Skunk Works. They ultimately buy 59 of them, of the F-117A Nighthawks, at $43 million each. So that is $2.5 billion in revenue for Lockheed, a time when they desperately needed it and Skunk Works desperately needed it. Huge win for Ben Rich. Huge win. The real combat debut for the Nighthawk is during the Gulf War, during Operation Desert Storm.
0: So that's, what, six years that they keep it undeployed where they have it, but the U.S. government has decided that we want to save it.
1: Well, where are they going to use it? We're not really fighting any wars. And this is a fighter. This isn't a reconnaissance plane. This is a fighter slash tactical strike plane, which, again, Skunk Works hasn't built one of those since, I guess, what, the 104 Starfighter?
0: I think that's right. I mean, yeah, the F in F-117 is fighter. The SR-71 was not an F plane.
1: So the plane is never really tested in combat of what it can do until Operation Desert Storm. And I remember watching this live when this happened. I don't know if you remember this, Ben, but I vividly remember when this happened. The first night of the war, Operation Desert Storm. I mean, this is broadcast live to the world. The U.S. Air Force completely knocks out all of Baghdad's defenses and infrastructure. And the
0: way they do it is with the Nighthawks. They came in under the dark of night. No one knew they were coming. They hit a bunch of the high-value targets. And then these wars now tend to be these overwhelming force at the start and then long, long drawn out battles after that. But this set the stage for what the modern military engagement looks like. Yeah.
1: So a few quotes here that
0: are in Skunk Works.
1: First from the Secretary of the Air Force at the time, we learned that night, the first night of the Gulf War. And for many nights after that, that stealth combined with precision weapons constituted a quantum advance in air warfare. Ever since World War II, when radar systems first came into play, Air warfare planners thought that surprise attacks were rendered null and void and thought in terms of large armadas to overwhelm the enemy and get a few attack aircraft through to do damage. Now we again think in small numbers and in staging surprise, surgically precise raids. And then uh, another quote here from one of the pilots that flew that night. To put it in domestic terms, if Baghdad had been Washington— That first night, we knocked out their White House, their Capitol building, their Pentagon, their CIA, their FBI and took out their telephone and telegraph facilities. We damaged Andrews Air Force Base, Langley, and Balling, and we punched big holes in all the key Potomac River bridges. And that was just the first night. So this thing is deadly. The Nighthawk very much worked. The Nighthawk flew 1% of the air missions in Desert Storm, but accounted for 40% of all damaged targets.
0: And so while this plane was a massive success for what it was intended to do, this is where I sort of want to stop glorifying some of the military might the way that we did in the Cold War, which was like obviously for deterrent. This is when the foreign policy sort of changes a little bit in a way where you cock your head a little bit and, you know, this isn't a political show. Yeah, people are dying here. Yeah. This is the incredible
1: paradox of this. The most overwhelming and terrifying weaponry ever created and weapons capabilities ever created was never used and was created so that it would never be used.
0: Right. It's incredible. It's fascinating. Yeah, totally. But here, this stuff is used and a lot of people died. For the F-117A, 10,000 people worked on this airplane, the Nighthawk, and kept the secret for 21 years until it was declassified. Wow. Crazy.
1: Yeah. Yeah let's just divorce any value judgments here for the moment. In terms of the airplane itself and Lockheed and Skunk Works and the company, while Desert Storm was, on the one hand, this great success story for the airplane, there's also kind of the end. That's the end of the Cold War. Yep. There is no doubt after Desert Storm and all the other things that happened uh, and the falling of the Berlin Wall by the early to mid-90s, it's done. And this success of the Nighthawk and success of the U.S. military from a military standpoint during the Gulf War, you know, that sets the conditions to bring us to the modern era. And Lockheed today, which is not Lockheed,
0: but Lockheed Martin. And Boeing today, which is not Boeing, but Boeing and McDonnell Douglas, and this incredible era of consolidation. Right. And
1: Northrop, which is not Northrop, but Northrop
0: Grumman, and which... Very closely,
1: almost, was part of Lockheed Martin, but got blocked by the DOJ.
0: Yeah. And then you have Raytheon and General Dynamics, which have eaten their fair share of all the other competitors, too.
1: So the Gulf conflict, I think, ends in 91, I believe. And it becomes really obvious that the Cold War era of arms buildup in the U.S. is over. And defense budgets are going to shrink
0: massively. And we need to start nuclear disarmament. We need to start destroying a lot of the nuclear warheads that we build.
1: Right. And everybody in the industry knows it. And then it becomes super explicit. This is kind of an amazing event that happens. In July of 1993, the then deputy defense secretary, William Perry, calls the CEOs of all the major prime defense contractors to a dinner in Washington At which he explicitly tells them defense spending is going to shrink massively. Duh, you know that. And he instructs the CEOs present that you all need to consolidate and start merging with one another. We, the Defense Department, are no longer going to be able to feed all of the metaphorical mouths at this table. And the CEO of then Martin Marietta, soon to be Lockheed Martin, refers to this dinner tongue-in-cheek as the Last Supper. And indeed it was. This is an amazing event. Literally, a government agency
0: just told an industry what to do. This doesn't happen in America. Very explicitly. And this was rumored for a long time. People were like, wait, did this really happen? The U.S. government instructed these big companies to become anti-competitive, to all merge together. And this 1993 thing really kicks off an era of intentional government policy around combining companies. Yeah, which is
1: very odd. American industry and I think as we saw during the Cold War era, America functions on competition and thrives in competition. And here the government is saying less competition.
0: And in part, they're basically saying, look, it's an acknowledgement that A lot of the times, companies thrive because they're in growing markets, and this is now a shrinking market. And so what do you do if you want to maintain America's military industrial base, but you know for a fact the market is shrinking this year and likely every year for the next decade or two? Like, what do you actually do? And so I think the intent here is to say, we don't want to lose capability We want the U.S. to remain a country that has a whole bunch of people that know how to build this stuff. So if we need it, it's there. But you're going to put each other out of business because we just won't have enough for you. So you need to, like, merge and get more efficient so we don't lose the muscle, but – you know, you all have real businesses, real going concerns. And this whole like, so you don't lose the muscle thing, that is unique on this episode versus any other episode because the government is an indifferent player in almost every episode, every company that we talk about. But in this one, they're an extremely interested party where it is in the national interest. They are the customer. Right. It is in the national interest for us to maintain this capability or so that's the sort of policy.
1: Yep. So this sets off... An amazing series of events, kind of similar to um, hearkening back to the LVMH episode when Louis Vuitton and Mouet Hennessy merged, not because they liked each other or because there was a business reason. They merged for like practicalities and to avoid dying and getting taken over by hostile raiders. In 1993, Lockheed buys General Dynamics fighter jet business that we already talked about, the F-16 business. And then in 1994, the big shoe drops. They announce a, quote, merger of equals with Martin Marietta.
0: That goes through in 1995. Except they didn't merge everything about. There's two spinouts of the Lockheed Martin combination. One is there's another set of things that Martin Marietta does around minerals and mining. And so there's literally a Martin Marietta company that's publicly traded today that still exists that's around mining raw materials. Do you know this because you looked up the mind safety disclosures? <laughs> I was disappointed to see that there were no mind safety disclosures in Lockheed Martin's financials. There's another thing that spins out called L3 Communications, which is oh, yeah. the set of things that won't be combining into Lockheed Martin. And this has actually become a fairly formidable competitor today. There's the five big primes Lockheed Martin, Boeing, Raytheon, Northrop Grumman, and General Dynamics. And L3 is kind of growing, which is fairly unprecedented in this era of primes. But you might be saying, what is the L3? Well, there were three L's involved in creating this company. One of them was the investment bank that helped combine them Lehman Brothers. Brothers. Yes. Frank Lanza, Robert LaPenta, and Lehman Brothers are the L's.
1: So the assets that do merge of Lockheed and Martin in January 1996, shortly after the big merger goes through, they then acquire the defense business from Loral for almost $10 billion. And then, as we said a minute ago, in July 1997, they attempt to merge with Northrop Grumman.
0: Right. This is like Lockheed Martin sort of like looks at the DOD and they're like, are we supposed to keep going? Yeah. Like you
1: told us to do this, right? Yeah. (laughs) They misread the tea leaves on that one. That merger gets announced. Uh, everything's signed off. The DOJ blocks it, I assume, with tacit approval from the DOD on that.
0: Yeah. I mean, the thing with the five big primes is they're all like very good at a certain bucket of things And so if you start combining Lockheed and Northrop, which are the two that really kind of like bid against each other at this point in history, I mean, like the B-2 bomber and the B-21, like there's often this face-off between Northrop and Lockheed. If you combine them, then you actually do away with all competition.
1: Yeah. Would have been so fitting, right, given that Northrop was a co-founder of Lockheed. (laughs) But (laughs) all the way back to the beginning of the episode. So the DOJ blocks that, but also in 1997, Boeing merges with McDonnell Douglas and becomes
0: the giant that it is now. Do you know why that happened? Ooh, I do not. So we're going to talk here in a second about the F-22 program and the F-35 program. We'll skip over the F-22 for the moment just to hit this point. For the JSF, the Joint Strike Fighter F-35 program— This is going to be like the biggest ever military contract. And so it's really worth going for. And there's three companies that are worth gunning for in the mid-90s. There's Lockheed Martin right after their combination. There's Boeing. And there's still independent McDonnell Douglas. Mm. And McDonnell Douglas is eliminated from competition. So it just comes down to Boeing Uh, and Lockheed as the two finalists. Within a month, Boeing announces that it's buying uh, McDonnell
1: Douglas. Yeah, that was probably the end of McDonnell Douglas once they got eliminated.
0: Exactly. This contract is so big and they were betting so heavily on it that basically Boeing and McDonnell Douglas after McDonnell Douglas loses kind of need to just combine and size up in order to be a formidable competitor to Lockheed Martin going forward. Do
1: you know the size of the F-35 Joint Strike Fighter program like in terms of dollars?
0: I do. It is a $30 billion DOD contract for 398 airplanes just for the U.S. We'll talk about that in a minute, but it was a prize worth going for.
1: So yeah, if you lose this contract, this is literally life or death, whether you get this or not. Right. So losing this creates some extreme combination. And obviously this sets the stage. I'm going to hand it over to you in a minute to lead the discussion of all the dynamics around this and the military industrial complex and defense contractors today. But to set the stage, I have a few quotes from Norm Augustine, who was CEO of Martin Marietta, where the merger happens, and Dan Tellup, the CEO of Lockheed, is the first CEO of the combined company. Dan came up through LMSC, started there, worked in LMSC for decades, and then became the CEO of Lockheed. He's the first CEO of the combined company, and then Norm takes over for a few years after that. In 1987, Norm is a character. <laughs> He's a serious character. <laughs> he writes a Harvard Business Review article. I want to read a few quotes from this. Following The Last Supper, which he termed it The Last Supper, it became evident that there were only two potential survival strategies. One was to move into new markets, he's meaning commercial markets, a difficult and time-consuming option that has rarely succeeded, and as we talked about, definitely Lockheed tried that in the 70s and failed miserably with the L-1011. The other strategy entailed something almost as difficult. Increasing market share in existing markets during a period of severely declining businesses. Duh, this is what we're talking about. And he says, here's what happened. He just lays it all out here. Lockheed soon purchased General Dynamics' aircraft business and Martin Marietta purchased General Electric's aerospace business. All told, our company comprises 17 previously independent entities, like independent until recent times as he's writing this. General Dynamics, Sanders, Gould Ocean Systems, GE Aerospace, RCA Aerospace, Xerox Electro Optical Systems, Goodyear Aerospace, Fairchild Weston, Honeywell Electro Optics, Ford Aerospace, Librascope, IBM Federal Systems, Unisys Defense, Lockheed,
0: Martin Marietta, and Laurel. What a Franken Company. Amazingly, when Lockheed and Martin merged together, it was still only worth $10 billion, which has grown to a $115 billion market cap today since 1995. No companies were trillion-dollar companies at that point in history, but, like, $10 billion company just wasn't that big. Yeah.
1: Well, also, at that point in time, I've got some stats on this. You may, too. As we've been alluding to, these were not very profitable entities. So Lockheed, at the time of the merger did $13 billion in revenue and only $422 million in net income. Martin Marietta was slightly more profitable, did $9.4 billion in revenue and $450 million in net income. So both of these are like 10% or less net income margins.
0: Yeah, and you basically have a situation where like, all these contracts kind of go to all of the contractors. They just rotate around who's the prime on it. And the prime makes the most money and then it has the most sort of sway and you don't want to be with a subcontractor. You'd rather be the prime contractor. But still, this current military-industrial complex is very, all five players are basically in on all the big contracts and the government's very aware of that and the companies are all very aware of that and it's sort of reached this stasis. Yep. So Ben Rich basically called it in 1992 when he was talking about this at the end of the Skunk Works book about the end of the B-2 bomber program, which, by the way, the B-2 was kind of a make good when they gave that to Northrop Grumman. This is the stealth bomber. Yeah. By all means, that should have gone to Lockheed Martin. They had the expertise from the F-117A, Nighthawk, and... I mean, this is the Lockheed side of the story, but they beat the B-2 in a lot of the early competitions. But the government still gave the award to Northrop Grumman because there was some particular plane that the government said Northrop could manufacture a bunch of and then sell internationally and then change their mind. And so then Northrop was sort of left holding the bag. And so it was the Department of Defense being like, all right, you can win this competition. And who knows if any of these things are true. That's Lockheed's side of the story. But anyway, Ben writes... Under the current manufacturing arrangements for the B-2, Boeing makes the wings, Northrop makes the cockpit, LTV makes the bomb bays, and the back end of the B-2 airplane, in addition to 4,000 subcontractors working on bits and pieces of everything else. Because of the tremendous costs involved, this is probably a blueprint for how big, expensive airplanes will be built in the future. For better or for worse, this piecemeal manufacturing approach, rather than the skunkworks way, will characterize large aerospace projects from now on. With many fewer projects, the government will have to spread the around across an even broader horizon. What will happen to the efficiency, the quality, and the decision-making? At a time of maximum belt-tightening in aerospace, those are not just words, but may well represent the keys to a company's ability to survive. Yep. So I think that sort of 1992 Ben Rich publishing the Skunk Works book... Then The Last Supper, it basically marks the end of Skunk Works. Skunk Works is still a term that is used to describe a part of Lockheed Martin, but is it the Skunk Works of the 50s, 60s, 70s? No, not at all. It's a completely different thing. And airplanes are just not built by small teams in this sort of auteur way, the way that they were in Kelly's era. So let's talk about some of these huge programs, the, these large fleets of planes that the US government has bought in recent years. And we'll start with the F-22. And this gives you a sense of how freaking long these timeframes take. So in 1981, the Air Force identified a requirement for an advanced tactical fighter to replace the F-15 Eagle and the F-16 Fighting Falcon. So that sort of kicks off this, we're going to need some future thing. In 1985, the initial order, and I don't know if it's technically an order or how it sort of changes over time, but the initial pseudo commitment is for the US government to buy 750 planes of what becomes the F 22 Raptor for $44 billion in the total program cost. Wow. That gets revised down. Again, an airplane has not flown yet. Just before 1997, to 339 planes, that's going from 750 to 339, for $62 billion in total program cost. That cost went up, even though the number of planes dramatically went down to like half. I was wondering, I was like, did Ben misspeak there? Nope. Then, the F-22 program is over. That was a big thing in the Obama administration where he basically said, I'm going to veto anything that comes to my desk for any more Raptors. Like, we're done with this. But it's not as good as it sounds. <laughs> no, it's not as noble. The final, down from 750 to 339, is 187 planes delivered. They kept the $62 billion total program cost fixed. They managed to do that. Wow. So <laughs> each plane ends up costing $360 million if you amortize all the R&D against the very few airplanes that they ended up making. Wow. And I mean, the F-22, much like the SR-71, there's not much we can complain about with the plane. It is a badass plane. In fact, for seafare here in seattle the last few years they've had an f-22 it is an unbelievable thing to see live it performs maneuvers that just look alien i mean you just don't understand how the physics makes it work it was all about air superiority it was all about speed they took all of the stealth lessons from the f-117 and put it into a very fast air dominating airplane
1: so the stealth fighter the Nighthawk was angular and looked like a Super Nintendo Star Fox plane. Because the computational ability to model it at the time, it wasn't that you needed to have just flat surfaces. It's that you could have three-dimensional rounded looking surfaces. You just needed to be able to model it for the radar signature. And computers weren't advanced enough at the Mm. time to be able to build a 3D modeled version of a radar stealth structure. As they advanced, you are now able to do that in much the same way that in video games, you can now build lifelike looking 3D models out of the same polygons before. And so the Sega, I think it was the Model 3 arcade board that we talked about that was part of the real 3D revolution in video games.
0: They used it in the arcade cabinets, right? The cutting edge, better than home consoles,
1: computers. Virtua Racer, Virtua Cop, Virtua Fighter being the big one, we're on that. Sega co-developed those boards with Lockheed Martin.
0: In order to model the stealth airplanes. Yes. Unbelievable. That is insane. So fun. (laughs) So what we can see here is sort of the classic modern, boondoggle is probably the wrong word, but program gone awry where there's a sensible total program cost for making a lot of airplanes. And then as there's more pressure on the budget over time and there's cutbacks that happen, you end up making less and less airplanes. And so it's really hard to amortize all the R&D costs. And because of the way that these contracts work, it's not the tech company that's left holding the bag. It's not the contractor holding the bag. It's total cost plus model. The company, the contractor, Lockheed, doesn't take any risk. And so who's holding the bag? The government's just paying more for each airplane rather than, you know, you could imagine if I was uh, Apple and I sunk a trillion dollars into developing the next great device and then no one bought them, I'm out a trillion. But in this scenario, the government's like, look, I told you I'd pay that much. I'm paying that much. And unfortunately, I just can't spread the R&D across as many units. Wow. It's the R&D,
1: but also the tooling, like we were talking about with the Blackbird. Totally. The infrastructure that you need to spin
0: up to make a new airplane is a lot. Right. Following Ben Rich's sort of, hey, I think this is how airplanes are going to be made in the future. This happens in 46 states. The F-22
1: is built in 46 states.
0: Yes. And it requires 95,000 jobs, which in... Some ways is good. It's good to employ people. In other ways, the reason that some of these projects get funded is because it creates these jobs. And the reason that it's in 46 states is because that way, basically every member of Congress is incented to vote for it. You're talking about pork barrel politics. Exactly. So I think Lockheed has become world class at understanding where their bread is buttered. Yes, their customer is the US government, but the people approving their funding are individual people, these members of Congress who all want to get reelected. And so Lockheed spreads all these operations around, they employ all these people, and members of Congress love nothing more than creating jobs for their constituents and they hate nothing more than participating in a vote that eliminates jobs. And so Congress can kind of be simplified to 538 principal agent problems.
1: And contrast that with the team of, you know, what 50 engineers and 100 machinists that built the U-2. Yeah, of course, the F-22 is a much more advanced airplane than the U-2. But the size of the engineering challenge relative to state-of-the-art technology was way less than the size
0: of the U-2 engineering challenge relative to state-of-the-art technology. Yep. So then there's the next program that comes along, the F-35 Lightning II, the Joint Strike Fighter. And so, you know, the mindset here is, well, we finally get it. We need to make a lot of these things if we're going to make a big investment. The government sort of pools its resources and the DOD sort of works across the armed services and they reach out to all of our allies, Britain and others, and they say, what's like a common platform that we can develop so that we can get the best economies of scale out of this thing? That's the right thing for the American taxpayer. And so they come up with this idea for the F-35 Lightning Two, and they're going to make three models and each of the models are for a different purpose. It's this incredible piece of technology. One of the three models can actually angle its engine down and take off vertically using its engine to reposition. I don't think they can use this in combat, but they can like use it to move itself around on an aircraft carrier and stuff like that. It's pretty incredible to watch videos of it if you just go search on YouTube. It interestingly has a different aim and mentality than the F-22. It's less about being sort of the fastest plane in the skies and much more about having the technology and the visibility to have the best information at all times. It's sort of looking to the future of information-based warfare more than pure air superiority and speed. It's not all the way to, like, a drone future or a cybersecurity future, but you can see it drifting there. Really intense communications between a whole squadron of fighters, intense heads-up displays with digital stuff for the pilots in the cockpits and in their helmets. And so it's sort of, like, the most technology-forward plane program ever. So when I say... Big, I mean, really big in terms of the number of orders that are going to be placed. The initial order book is approximately 3,000 airplanes worth a potential $200 billion for the total program cost. Wow. In practice, it's kind of as pork barrelly as the F 22 lockheed won the contract but you know it's subcontracted it's peanut buttered out to all the other big programs too the fuselage is northrop grumman baa systems from the uk makes the rear fuselage these pieces are shipped all over the globe before final assembly so we've sort of expanded it even from pork barrel in the u.s to like which of our allies can participate in making this thing and thus benefiting in their area too so here's some of the stats from lockheed's 2022 annual report The USA's F-35 order is a $30 billion order, just from the U.S., $30 billion. That's 398 airplanes. That is $750 million per airplane. The Swiss have placed an order for $6 billion for 36 airplanes. Finland bought 64, Germany 35, Greece 20, the Czech 24, Canada 88, Poland 32, Lockheed Martin... This is an enormous win to win this program, and it is, among us and our allies, the largest ever purchase anyone has ever made for any piece of defense equipment.
1: It's just so clear, listening to you talk about that and contrasting it with everything we talked about in the story portion of the episode, this is a different world than the Lockheed of World War II and the Cold War and the military of World War II and the Cold War. like. It's very unclear to me what the threat-based need is here for this. (laughs) Well, yeah, hopefully deterrence. Well, I guess, I don't know. I'm not a military strategist, but, you know, you mentioned drones. Drones are a thing now, and they're a lot cheaper.
0: Yeah, put a pin in that for the moment. I'll finish rounding out the national defense budget, just to put all this in context of what Lockheed sort of represents here. So our national defense budget in the United States is $800 billion. As you would expect, that's more than any other country in the world. It's 3 to 4% of our GDP we spend on defense. Interestingly, it is down on a percentage basis of when you think about like the percent of federal revenue spent on defense, it's actually down. Back in the 60s, we spent half of our federal revenue on the military. And in recent years, it's fluctuated between 12 and 20%. So I think that's a little bit of a counter-narrative to people that like to complain about how much money we spend on the military.
1: Well, I guess it is, you know, to the point of consolidation in the Last Supper, the government was clear, we're going to spend a lot less. We're just going to spend it in a much more concentrated fashion.
0: Exactly. The military, industrial, congressional complex has really, it's almost like what's happened to the banking system. We like pseudo nationalize a few companies. There's these too big to fail entities that are like in cooperation with the government. Neither can really exist without each other. And we just are okay with that. We say, okay, that's how the system works. And for better or for worse, private industry and the government are tied at the hip there. Mm-hmm. So a few more stats on this. So that I said in recent years, the government's DoD or defense spending is between 12 and 20 percent. The total U.S government budget is six trillion dollars. So defense in there at 800 billion clocks in. it's actually lower than social security, health care, and income security.
1: Wait a minute, you said it was three to four percent.
0: It's three to four percent of GDP. Ah. But it's 12 to twenty percent of the federal budget. So okay, we know that of the 6 trillion dollar budget, defense is less than social security, healthcare, and income security. It is more than Medicare, education, or transportation. Just so people sort of know where it kind of sits there. So of that 800 billion dollars, about half of the defense budget is spent on contractors like Lockheed Martin, and of that 400 that's spent on contractors, 50 billion goes to Lockheed. They are the single largest recipient of federal spending as a contractor, full stop. Wow. Not even just defense across all companies? Across all companies. Wow. I
1: knew they were the largest defense contractor, but I didn't realize they were the largest government contractor, period.
0: Yep. Lockheed, then Boeing, then General Dynamics, then Raytheon, then Northrop, then McKesson. Wow. You get to five before you even get to a healthcare. Wow. So you've got that $50 billion that goes to Lockheed Martin from the federal government. How much of their total revenue do you think that is? Oh, it's got to be like ninety percent. It's close. It tends to hover around seventy-five percent. So, uh, sixty-six billion dollars was Lockheed's total revenue last year, of which fifty billion came from the U.S. federal government. Makes sense. And I get the rest. I would assume would come from foreign governments. Correct. Uh, yeah, our allies. Because the U.S. government basically has a rofer on anything and can put the kibosh on Lockheed exporting to anyone. It's not terribly profitable. Their net income margin is 8%, as we've been sort of talking about the whole time. You can sort of like see the cost-plus pricing right there at the bottom line of the company. Lockheed Martin makes a bunch of money, and at the end they only have 8%, and that's basically contractually figured out. I think whenever one of these contracts gets bid out, The big defense contractor says, I'm going to slap 8, 9, 10, 11% on top of it, and that's going to be the cost. And that is exactly why their financial statements look the way they do, is because that's exactly how the government decides to fund it.
1: Which we should probably talk a little bit about the rationale for that. I'm no expert in this, and uh, we should probably have an economist on ACQ2 at some point in time to talk about it. But my understanding is that while Warren Buffett and Charlie Munker hate cost plus contracts. And in general, they set up terrible incentives. They are useful in cases where you don't know what the cost is going to be, but it's a incredibly important investment to make. And traditionally, that has been defense expenditures. Yeah. Like, we need the U2. We don't know what the cost is going to be, but we need it to happen. Yep, We need the corona program. We don't know what the cost is going to be, but we need it to happen. And I think that is the rationale of how we got here.
0: But it doesn't make sense when the government's buying more modern things. Like we're buying software as a service. Let's say I'm making Slack and I'm selling that to the government. If the contract (laughs) to procure something that looks like Slack requires me to bid on it in a certain way, and I'm using Slack, there's lots of defense software you could sort of think about here. Palantir, for example – How do you let the government put out a contract to bid on that's structured a certain way when the way that you've decided to structure your company where you do R&D up front, you're willing to take on some of the risk, and then you want to sell something and amortize your R&D across all of your customers the way that every tech company does and the way that you sort of get operating leverage on your company, that doesn't fit in these gigantic cost-plus contracts. In fact, what it ensures is you cannot get operating leverage on your company No matter how large you scale, you will never have big, fat, gross margins that outrun your fixed costs. It's like the opposite of what every tech company is trying to do.
1: Right. This is sort of the great irony in the the government together with Lockheed really seeded Silicon Valley. The modern Silicon Valley and the modern defense industry are in many ways kind of incompatible from a business model perspective. Right.
0: Yeah, someone told us as we were preparing and and researching this episode that Palantir figured out that what they had to do was sell laptops to the government that came preloaded with their software so they could sell a physical thing that had a cost of goods sold associated with it such that it could be bought in a cost plus way. And now I
1: think this is
0: probably changing and
1: certainly there are smart people in the government that recognize this and their pilot programs to be able to buy software and technology but if you look at some of the most successful Silicon Valley-style startups that are selling defense to the government, you know, whether it's SpaceX or Andrew or others, yeah, they're selling hardware. They're not
0: selling software solutions. Yeah, I'd say we're in the first out of the first inning and in trying to figure out how to sell software to the Department of Defense. Which is sort of
1: scary when you think about it because, like, I suspect, you know, most acquired fans will not find this a controversial statement, but... I think it's quite likely that modern warfare is going to occur more in software than in hardware, just like the Cold War occurred more in capabilities than actual fighting.
0: Yeah. And it's probably fair to say, I didn't talk to anyone at Lockheed. I'm not judging anyone who works at Lockheed or any of these prime contractors. But I think the reputation in the industry is, if you're a fantastic software engineer, you're probably not going to land there. If what you want to work on is the national agenda and defending America and ensuring our way of life and hopefully working toward peace and perhaps with weapons as a deterrent for future wars, you're probably going to go to a more interesting modern company. And that's why you see the Andurils of the world and the Palantirs of the world kind of sucking up all of the top talent that has this as a thing that they're really passionate about working on.
1: Yeah, there's also a huge difference now versus certainly World War II, but also the Cold War. And we talked about this a little bit with Skunk Works. The motivation of people who are going to work at Skunk Works, and this is also absolutely true at LMSC in the early days of Silicon Valley, and you listen to some of these guys talking in these YouTube videos, they weren't doing it to get rich. They were doing it out of patriotism for their country. Like the clear and present threat of the Cold War was an extremely motivating factor. That's not there in the same way today. And so if you're an extremely talented software engineer, you have a prospect of potentially making a lot of money, either working for a big tech company or a startup and getting equity or starting a company yourself. Or you could go work at Lockheed and probably
0: not make a lot of money. And if you don't think that there's an existential threat to our way of life, then you probably aren't terribly motivated. Right. Very different time we live in. Very, very different time. Or at least there's a a perception that it's a very different time that we live in. I don't really know for sure if it is or not.
1: Well, which is so funny about this whole thing, the Cold War and now, perception is reality. Nobody really knew then and nobody really knows now what the reality of the threat is. But the perception is what drives people's behavior, and that's what drives the economy.
0: It is in the government's interest for everyone to feel safe and secure, and so you can sort of rise above Maslow's hierarchy and do other stuff with your life and, like, create, innovate, and live happy, prosperous, enjoyable lives and go to work and do things that aren't for defense and drive the economy forward. It is also in the interest of the country to make everyone a little bit aware of how we have this incredible quality of life in the U.S. And I don't think we're indexed in that direction even 1%. I think as you talk to people, there's a lot of reasonably oblivious but well-intentioned people who are, like, not willing to give the credence to America's incredible military of why we get to enjoy such charmed lives in this country And a lot of people that want to, like, go, la-da-da-da-da, okay, must be safe everywhere now, just like the U.S. And we live in this amazing, globalized, wonderful world where no one needs to think about the military at all. And you're like, do you live on this planet? I love pacifism, too, and I love peace as much as anyone, and that should be the goal. And also the default state of humans.
1: (laughs) Technology changes. Human nature doesn't.
0: Right. Unfortunately there's some set of people who want to like come and take your stuff. And in the same way that price is set in a market by the person who is willing to pay the most, the need for security in the world is set by the person who's most willing to come take your stuff. And that's how much defense you need to have in order to stop them from coming and taking your stuff. And hopefully, you don't need to get into armed conflict over it. But I do generally feel that there is a disconnect between people who enjoy the way of life that we have but are unwilling to acknowledge why we have it. And I think that is extremely different today than it was 60 years ago.
1: Yes, I totally agree with everything you're saying. I also think there's another layer to this, which is really a huge theme of this journey with the research and doing this episode for me with Lockheed. And that is the phenomenon of competition and its impact on human behavior, probably for both the Soviet Union and the U.S., although I'm less equipped to talk about the Soviet Union. The fact of that competition led to tremendous advances for society. I mean, all the things we just talked about, Silicon Valley itself, for God's sakes, wouldn't have existed without this. So there is sort of a rational argument for having an adversary. Technology and society was pushed forward in America by... The Cold War and by Lockheed as part of that.
0: Yeah. Well, we've already done a bunch of playbook stuff. So before we get into that formally codified analysis <laughs> section, let's just talk about real quick the segments of Lockheed Martin today. So people understand, like, what do they actually do today? Because we've talked about a lot of this stuff. There's aeronautics, which in theory contains skunk works. So that's F 35s, F 22s, the old F 16s, the C 130J Hercules airlifter. The F-35, I believe, is the largest program generating 20 percent of all net sales across all segments. Well,
1: like you said, it is enormous.
0: Right. It's 66 percent of 2022's revenue in that aeronautics division. So like aeronautics equals F-35. There's also missiles and fire control. Then there's Three, rotary and mission systems, which contains helicopters. They bought Sikorsky, so it contains Sikorsky, the other helicopter company. And then four is space, which includes the Orion capsule that's evolved over the decades and is now part of NASA's Artemis moon program. It also includes ULA, which is the joint venture that we didn't talk about with Boeing that was sort of forced upon both Boeing and Lockheed Martin, where they both independently were developing launch capabilities for the U.S. government. This is especially pre-SpaceX or before SpaceX was as powerful as it is today. The U.S. needed to contract launch services from someone. And so Lockheed and Boeing were both developing them. That didn't go terribly well, and they ended up asking for bailouts from the government. And the government said... Uh, can you two combine? And Lockheed Martin and Boeing came back and said, are you kidding me with that guy? No, these companies hate each other. And so, but they agreed to do it because they kind of had to. And so ULA is sort of this shotgun wedding between the two companies.
1: Which, as we talked about on the SpaceX episode, really opened the door for SpaceX to come in and compete.
0: Totally. And the reason they didn't go well was because in sort of the pre-SpaceX era, there were all these companies that wanted to put stuff in space that all ended up going out of business. You think like Teledesic, Iridium, Mm. a lot of bankruptcies. And so Boeing had tooled up this huge factory. Lockheed had done this too. And so they were left holding the bag. And it got really ugly. Boeing was caught trying to steal proprietary data from Lockheed Martin. Ultimately, This JV has gone well. ULA is going to 2x their capacity to 25 launches a year, which is way more than they used to do, but still way less than SpaceX over the next five years or so with this Vulcan rocket. Still more expensive than SpaceX, but, you know, they started from big incumbents rather than starting from a startup. So it's just sort of a different disposition. Joint ventures are not permanent things, and these companies kind of can't continue to be in business together. So ULA is up for sale, and it'll be very interesting to see if one company or the other ends up buying it. But it is an important part of NASA's Artemis program and others moving forward. It's also important to Amazon. A whole bunch of the Kuiper launches are happening on ULA.
1: Oh, interesting. Is that because Bezos doesn't want to launch on SpaceX?
0: Neither company will really, like, say anything about that, but (laughs) there's got to be something in there.
1: Ah, billionaire competition.
0: Yes. So those are the four segments. Much like our Sony episode, and I'm pulling forward a playbook thing here, this is a pretty well-diversified conglomerate. I mean, fighter jets are their bread and butter at 40% of overall revenue, but... Missiles and space are each 17%, and rotary mission systems are 26%, and all of them are 9 to 14% margins. So they all are double-digit percentage of revenue and double-digit percentage of profit. So congratulations, we've got a conglomerate. All right, well, let's head into our analysis section, and this will be to kind of pull together a lot of the strings that we've mentioned on this episode, but codify, like, what are the real takeaways? And, like, let's understand this business and this institution and what it is in our world today to kind of tie together some of the things we've teased at over the course of history here. And again, few caveats. One, we know we did not tell the entire Lockheed Martin story, nor could we. Two, this is not a political or defense podcast. You can tell that I'm a conflicted person on this. Let's start our analysis section with power. So what we do in this section is we analyze what it is about a business that enables it to achieve persistent differential returns, or to put it another way, to be way more profitable than their closest competitor and do so sustainably. And this is adapted from a framework that Hamilton Helmer created in his book, Seven Powers, The seven are counter-positioning as a startup versus an incumbent, scale economies across a broad customer base, switching costs versus other near competitors, network economies, process power, branding, and cornered resource.
1: (laughs) I was really smiling as you were defining that as uh, persistent differential returns versus their competitors, because I'm not sure that Lockheed has differential returns versus their competitors.
0: I don't know that there's really a market here. Yeah. And power kind of comes only in markets.
1: Yes, (laughs) correct. (laughs) For this, maybe it's more useful to talk about the prime contractor industry as a whole versus any specific player.
0: Well, all the players have the same profit margins, too.
1: I guess where I was going with this is I think there's a cornered resource and process power that The prime contractor industry as a whole has. The cornered resources, they are the ones that get the prime contracts from the government. And then the process power, which I think probably is really legitimate. We talked to some folks in preparing for this. They are incredible systems integrators at what they do. What did you say? They're 4,000 or 3,000 subcontractors for the F-35?
0: Something like that. It's nuts.
1: To orchestrate that and coordinate that into an airplane that does the things that that airplane does in practice, that's hard.
0: I can't believe it's not all made by the same company. The fuselage is made by a different company than the wings. Are you freaking kidding me? And that thing works? Didn't you say that different parts of the fuselage are made by different companies? Yes, on different continents.
1: Yeah. There's definitely process power in that. You can't just pick that up out of Lockheed and go put it somewhere else and expect it to function. Right.
0: Yeah, there's 100 years of know-how and 50 years of very well-honed ways of engaging with the customer here. The customer, again, being the Pentagon. Right,
1: the customer. It's like Big Brother, the customer.
0: I think you're right that we should think about it as the primes versus everyone else. It's really hard to become a new prime. Yep. Maybe impossible? You know,
1: Palantir has sort of done it, I guess, Andrew is
0: kind of doing it. But these, I think, are still pretty small scale compared to the big primes. The $50 billion of spend that the one customer has with the one company.
1: Yeah, it's really hard to break in and be a prime.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's funny, like Lockheed versus Northrup, there's not counter positioning, really. There's not scale economies because there's one customer to amortize costs across, but you're actually not doing any fixed-cost stuff. Your customer is absorbing all the fixed-cost stuff, too. Switching costs, I guess, but every time there's a new program, they rebid it out, and the government's typically excited to give it to not the incumbent because they actually they want to rotate these programs around. So fighter jets are typically not made by the same company two generations in a row, although... Lockheed Martin has sort of shown with the F-22 and the F-35 that they have won that. I think you're right on process power broadly, but is Lockheed Martin's process versus Northrop Grumman's process? No. Branding, I don't think matters here, really. I mean, in cost-plus contracting, you're just actually not willing to pay more to one company than the other. So, uh, cornered resource? No. No. Not versus each other. Yeah. Right. So there really isn't power within the industry. But to the extent that you have already become one of these five, then together the five have power versus new entrants.
1: Which is so funny. You know, you really, I think, kind of nailed it at the beginning when you said this isn't a market. It's not a market. And I guess, duh, obviously it's not a market because there's only one customer. You can't really have a market when there's only one
0: player on one side (laughs) of it. Yeah. That's all I got for power. Yeah, me too. So as we drift into playbook, I think the lens I kind of want to take on this since we did so much analysis over the course of the episode is what are the big takeaways? Like if I'm really sitting here stewing on all this, thinking about like what matters in this episode, one of the big ones is that Lockheed Martin has a dual purpose for existing. There's all the normal stakeholders involved, customers, employees, and shareholders that they want to produce value for. But there's this second thing where they exist for the good of America and its interests, which causes some interesting second-order effects, and one being, what is the optimal number of competitors in the space? The government tries to optimize this as a heavily interested party, but before 1993, there were way too many competitors. After 1998, they determined we don't want to have any fewer (laughs) competitors But it's sort of odd that there is a force that is not the market that is dictating how this plays out because that force, in this case the U.S. government, is sort of in charge of all of our well-being in a way where they don't trust that the market will look out for that. And when I say that, I mean if you left a free market to play out, what would happen is A, you'd sell arms to our enemies – which the government doesn't want. B, a bunch of companies would put each other out of business and we might lose our industrial base. People would start outsourcing to other countries. We would potentially lose capability if the government stopped buying it for 10 years, but we wanted it 10 years later and we got in a war. Oh, this almost happened, right? The government didn't let Lockheed
1: go out of business in the 1970s. This was right as the Kennan satellite project was getting going. We could not let Lockheed go out of business
0: because we needed that. Right. So a market cures a lot of problems like price, serving the best product to customers. You know, there are exceptions on all these things, but it doesn't solve for making sure that America stays globally competitive. And so the government has to put their hand on the scale in all these different ways in this market for that reason.
1: Yep. Well, globally competitive is an interesting way to put uh, safe and globally dominant. Maybe let's put it that way.
0: That's probably the right way to put it. I almost feel guilty over and over again on this episode saying "in America's national interest" or "America's national way of life" or "the American way" because that's gotten so abused over the years to justify offense-first moves that may not really have been necessary. But yes, globally safe and in practice, globally dominant. Yep. There's a second thing here, which is we literally fund these companies to keep them alive so that they keep employees trained should we need the employees trained, which is like something that doesn't really exist in other markets.
1: Which also is a huge part of the military side of this complex.
0: Right. Of the two million people employed by the military in the United States, do we need all two million of them today? No. It's to keep people in reserve, literally. That's not
1: a market-driven organization, nor I think would anybody argue it should be.
0: Right. Yeah. This gets into sort of the like arguments for and against the military industrial complex generally. So there's this like, A, keep the industrial base strong. It's good that we have this big spend on industry because like we need to have lots of people employed there and know all this stuff. There's this second one, which is like, it's literally a jobs program where you have Congress people, as we mentioned earlier, voting affirmatively for things because it puts jobs in their state. This is kind of the most pernicious argument of any of them for a pro-big military-industrial complex. And in particular, in this book that you and I both read, "Profits of War, the book basically just argues that this is all a massive misappropriation of funds and a whole bunch of people acting in their own self-interest and not for the country's self-interest.
1: It is as far to the side of the, the scale of like the military-industrial complex is bad and evil uh, is the "Profits of War book.
0: Right. So this is an excerpt from that book. The irony is that almost any other form of spending from education to healthcare to mass transit to weatherizing buildings, even a tax cut creates more jobs than military spending. And... That just falls on deaf ears over and over again with these programs, F-22 in particular, as that book points out. This, like, it creates lots of jobs. That argument continues to win the day. This 95,000 people are required to build the F-35. It's like, ooh, good, jobs for Americans. And, like, that is a terrible reason to fund something.
1: Right. It's kind of like I'm thinking about the recent period in tech companies in Silicon Valley that we are mercifully exiting out of now where it was all about employee headcount and capturing engineers and Facebook had God knows how many people working on Oculus and like, why? You know, that was the equivalent of the F-35.
0: Yeah. And Google sort of cornering resources on really smart people, despite the fact that they weren't getting any economic output out of them. Right. Right. I mean, the biggest argument, again, states all the way back to 1961 in Eisenhower's farewell address. He gave this sort of legendary military-industrial complex speech where he says, in the councils of government, we must guard against the acquisition of unwarranted influence, whether sought or unsought, by the military-industrial complex. The potential for the disastrous rise of misplaced power exists and will persist.
1: It's interesting, right? Two things. One, I think that was maybe in part from observing what was happening in the Soviet Union, where the military and military Mm. spending overran the whole rest of the economy. (laughs) Clearly, as we're talking about here, like, yeah, I think this is a nuanced issue. And certainly a lot of degree of non-market-based dynamics are warranted here. But you can't let the military-industrial complex get so big, it overruns the rest of the economy. That would not be good. The other thing I was going to say is, I think the end of that quote or speech, or at least part of it is, you know, Eisenhower sort of, I think, very naively puts forth the solution is uh, what does he say? Like an engaged and vigilant citizenry. You know, a yeah. populace, Especially this day and age, where things are so complex, that's kind of not possible. You know, is the average person really gonna dive into the details of how the F thirty five program works? Like,
0: no. Right. That's not a good outcome either. If everyone's preoccupied and keeping an eye to make sure big complex doesn't get too complexy. Right. Yeah. There's another one I've been thinking about, which is a parallel to our SpaceX episode, where if you'll remember on the SpaceX episode, we talked about—and gosh, that was a lifetime ago, three years—about how NASA prioritized safety over everything else. And so they took that to such an extreme where things could happen on a 20-year time span instead of a five-year time span— And SpaceX came in and said, what if we do it on a two-year time span? And we figure out how to be much more iterative in our development, and we're happy to explode some rockets, not with people on them. And you sort of take this, again, much more Silicon Valley approach to rapid iteration, testing your own prototypes internally, being okay showing off your failures and gathering data from them. Whereas... NASA couldn't do enough calculations before it finally was willing to do something to let something go to a launch pad. And that would cause extreme delays, massive budget overruns. And at the end of the day, it actually wasn't safer. That's the important thing here. In 130 or whatever it was, space shuttle missions, there were two that were tragic loss of life calamities. And so you look at that, you're like, that's actually not a great safety record, so maybe this isn't the right way to do it. Maybe calculating something to, you know, 15 significant digits of unlikely to fail is not actually the best outcome. And it sort of seems like the same thing in the military industrial complex where we're willing to sign a contract for airplanes that we get in 25 years because there are these like big, huge productions and It's just the opposite of the Skunk Works way of operating, where test your own prototypes, do it rapidly, start moving up and up and up, crash some planes in the desert. But overall, we're going to get to the same outcome much faster on a much lower budget and maybe with equivalent or better safety. A hundred percent. Well, I
1: can't think of a better place to talk about. what I think are really like the takeaways, for me at least, and I hope for many people listening, of this episode and it's really like the heyday glory days whatever you want to call it of Lockheed both with Skunk Works and LMSC of how these small Skunk Works type organizations achieved unbelievable unfathomable things with a small number of people in an unrealistically tight time frame with very constrained resources. And that mindset is certainly not the only way that you can achieve great things, but it's a really damn good way to do it. And that mindset got injected into Silicon Valley by these people, by the military and by Lockheed. And it's just so funny that the military industrial complex has now become the opposite of that, has become like what you're talking about with NASA. Again, there's many ways to succeed in different situations, call for different things. But like, if you really need to or want to achieve something great bordering on impossible in a tight bordering on unreasonable time frame, Kelly's 14 laws and LMSC's seven tenets are a pretty damn good way to do it.
0: That's so true. Otherwise, you get to this thing that Norm Augustine said, and I found what you were referring to earlier, I found the specific quote around how unbelievably expensive these things get if you do it the non-Skunk Works way, and we just move into this larger and larger morass that we're sort of, the direction we're basically going in in these 25-year programs. And he says, in the year 2054, the entire defense budget will purchase just one aircraft. This aircraft will have to be shared between the Air Force and the Navy three and a half days per week, except for leap year, when it will be made available to the Marines for the extra day. (laughs) He really is such a character. Truly. But the craziest thing is, much like Moore's Law, he accurately predicted the rate at which aircraft prices would continue to grow starting way back in 1983. He actually wasn't far off on the F-35 on sort of his prediction on how expensive it would be on the cost curve. To exactly your point, if you continue at current course and speed, we basically will have only billion-dollar airplanes going forward. They'll be made by everybody. There will be no new entrants.
1: Innovation will happen
0: very slowly, very slowly. When you look at Lockheed Martin as a business, they're going to do just fine for a long time. No doubt about it. They're an incredibly protected insulated business with an unbelievably wedded to them customer. And the creative destruction cycle will happen on other frontiers. Yeah, There will be some existential need to create something that these companies are bad at creating and that the U.S. government doesn't know how to buy from them. And the United States will have to figure it out another way. And whether that's cybersecurity or whether that's information warfare or whatever it is, whatever threatens the American way of life, I have pretty high confidence the American government will figure out some way to make sure that we prepare for that issue, whatever that issue is. And it may or may not be from one of these companies. And it's very likely that the Skunk Works mentality ends up solving more problems for our country, but probably not from the Skunk Works division of Lockheed Martin.
1: And, you know, I guess what is sort of heartening, at least as an American, is the capability to do this definitely still exists. It just happened with vaccines for the coronavirus.
0: Totally. Yeah, Operation Warp Speed is a great example of rip down all the barriers and figure out how to do something, even if there's some risk. Yep. You know
1: what? That's a good way to put a threat. Kind of the back to the LMSC tenant number one that we talked about so long ago in the story of focus on a threat-based need. I maybe want to evolve some of my comments earlier about competition into that. Competition creates threats it's not always Mm. competition that leads to a threat human beings and organizations tend to perform at their best in response to threats otherwise how are you going to be motivated to go to unreasonable extremes if you're not facing a threat
0: yeah no i like that nuance
1: which is kind of a you know to this playbook of like I certainly don't want to say artificially manufactured threats, but if you're building a company, certainly this exists in startup world. You have an implicit existential threat all the time as a startup before you reach cash flow profitability, which is like you got to make payroll and you got to like either get profitable or raise another round of funding or you're done.
0: Yeah, I think you're right. I think we're quickly sort of teasing out. There's sort of like two different things here. It's Lockheed Martin exists... To ensure the Americanness continues, as we know it today, current course and speed, as protected as it needs to be with the types of protections we need, great. We know where to get that, and I have no doubt that will continue happening. And also, there will be other motivations for people to form tight knit teams and accomplish great things. And like those are going to be four other threats and happen by other groups of people. And I want to hear your thoughts on that. Maybe this is the place to leave it. Rather than grading this time, let's come up with kind of the main takeaway. But I'm curious what you think.
1: I like that a lot. It's probably a good thing that the nature of that motivation and the uh, introduction of those threats to spur human ingenuity and creativity has moved, for now at least, mostly out of the war arena. It's probably good that it's not threat of nuclear war that is motivating people to achieve great things. Most people, yeah. Yeah, most people at least uh, right now, mercifully, thankfully. And that mindset was directly transferred from Lockheed and the military into Silicon Valley. That's how Silicon Valley operates today. And that's what makes it special. And it doesn't have to be because of threats of war. And it's a good thing that it's not.
0: All right. I think that's the right place to leave it. You want to do carve-outs?
1: Yeah, let's do it. My carve-out is a fun one I was reminded of because my favorite video game history podcast series, Resident Arc, is covering it as their game right now. I think I might have had this as a carve-out a couple years ago. The game Near Automata is a super fun game, and the series that Resident Arc is in the middle of is their video game storybook club going through it. It's both a really fun game to play and was kind of ahead of its time. The sort of theme of the game is all about can machines think and feel? And what does that look like? And like, oh, it was like really thought-provoking at the time. It's particularly thought-provoking right now in our era of, you know, open AI and GPT and generative AI and all that. So it's really fun to revisit that along with the great Resident art guys right now, talking about the themes of that story.
0: Nice. You'll have like a whole niche of people that are listening to your carve-outs for video game, (laughs) video game recs.
1: Totally.
0: I have two. One is something that didn't quite fit anywhere in this episode, but if you love airplanes and you are excited about the SR 71, you should Google the SR 71 Blackbird Speed Check Story. It's an awesome story that I'm not going to spoil for you, but is uh, about pilot jocks at their finest and uh, a triumphant Blackbird. It's a joy to read. It takes like two minutes. I think you'll like it. We'll also link to it in the show notes. The second one I have is very, very boring carve out, but it's something i found surprising. Ego Lawn Tools. E-G-O is the brand. They make effectively the Tesla of lawnmowers. And growing up, I had like a big gas lawnmower and you'd like pull a cord to start it and it was loud and it was smelly and it was dirty and it was like gas. And these are battery powered lawnmowers that are insanely powerful i have a leaf blower also that lasts like 30 minutes off of just a battery look at you you're just becoming a dad i'm finding some like very good catharsis in i just throw on uh, audiobook and as i'm researching an acquired episode and like go do lawn work for six hours and i find that to be like greatly gratifying to get away from a screen
1: i've chosen to go the uh higher gardeners route on this <laughs> <laughs>
0: uh, you can you also have a a two-year-old, so yes. that takes more of your time.
1: Well, and the nature of a yard in San Francisco is a little different. I'm not sure I'm capable of maintaining my yard uh, given <laughs> everything that's back there. <laughs> it requires more technical expertise, more systems integration.
0: More systems integration. All right, listeners, thank you so much for joining us. Our thanks to Pilot, Tiny, and Vanta. You can click the link in the show notes to get the great deals from each of them and learn more about each of their fine Find products and companies. If you want to become an LP, we would love to have you. Help us pick more episodes like this one in the future. Acquired.fm LP. And when I get back from uh, Berkshire, I think we'll do a, an LP call here in the next month or so. You should totally check out ACQ2 if you like hearing us interview other people. I can assure you the next few interviews are going to be insane. Oh, like, they are going to be insane. <laughs> David and I are in like pinching ourselves that these are happening. Even the ones that are live now, the one we just did with Jake, the one with Avlock from AngelList, the one with David from Retool, fantastic. Kamakshi with her company Samuha, all like really fascinating discussions. All oh, fascinating.
1: And we've got some big ones coming up.
0: Our interview game is about to change, so get excited, subscribe, look up ACQ2 in any podcast player. Now that you're done with this episode, come discuss it with us, acquired.fm slash Slack. We'd love to have you. And particularly,
1: too, I think there's a good chance with this episode that we'll have a lot of new to acquired folks who are listening. We unexpectedly had that in huge numbers with our LVMH episode, all sorts of new people coming in and experiencing Acquired and listening to us for the first time. If you're doing that now here with this Lockheed episode, definitely go check out some of our other episodes on other industries. And I just want to second what Ben said. Join the Slack and come talk about it with us. We love hearing from people. You know, we're obviously not in the defense industry. We love hearing from people who are. Tell us about your experiences, what it's like, what we got right, what we got wrong, and educate all the rest of us in the community too.
2: Yep, seriously. All right, with that, listeners, we'll see you next time. We'll see you next time.